the secret doctrine, the synthesis of science, religion, and philosophy, by Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, third and revised edition, volume three, narrated by Graham Dunlop, edited by Darren Grimes. As for what thou hearest others say, who persuade the many that the soul, when once freed from the body, neither suffers evil nor is conscious. I know that thou art better grounded in the doctrines received by us from our ancestors and in the sacred orgies of Dionysus than to believe them, for the mystic symbols are well known to us who belong to the Brotherhood. Plutarch The problem of life is man. Magic, or rather wisdom, is the evolved knowledge of the potencies of man's interior being, which forces are divine emanations, as intuition is the perception of their origin, and initiation our induction into that knowledge. We begin with instinct. The end is omniscience. A. Wilder Preface The task of preparing this volume for the press has been a difficult and anxious one and it is necessary to state clearly what has been done. The papers given to me by HPB were quite... The papers given to me by HPB were quite unarranged, and had no obvious order. I have, therefore, taken each paper as a separate section, and have arranged them as sequentially as possible. With the exception of the correction of the grammatical errors and the elimination of obviously un-English idioms, the papers are as HPB left them, save as otherwise marked. In a few cases I've filled in a gap, but any such addition is enclosed within square brackets, so as to be distinguished from the text. In The Mystery of the Buddha, a further difficulty arose. Some of the sections had been written four or five times over, each version containing some sentences that were not in the others. I have pieced these versions together, taking the fullest as basis, and inserting therein anything added in any other versions. It is, however, with some hesitation that I have included these sections in the secret doctrine. Together with some more suggestive thought, they contain very numerous errors of fact. And many statements based on exoteric writings, not on esoteric knowledge. They were given into my hands to publish, as part of the third volume of the secret doctrine and I therefore do not feel justified in coming between the author and the public, either by altering the statements to make them consistent with fact, or by suppressing the sections. She says she is acting entirely on her own authority, and it will be obvious to any instructed reader that she makes, possibly deliberately, many statements so confused that they are mere blinds, and other statements, probably inadvertently, that are nothing more than exoteric misunderstandings of esoteric truths. The reader must here, as everywhere, use his own judgment. But feeling bound to publish these sections, I cannot let them go to the public without a warning that much in them is certainly erroneous. Doubtless, had the author herself issued this book, she would have entirely rewritten the whole of this division. As it was, it seemed best to give all she had in the different copies and to leave it in its rather unfinished state, for students will best like to have what she said as she said it, even though they may have to study it more closely than would have been the case had she remained to finish her work. The quotations made have been so 
the quotations made have been as far as possible found, and correct references given. In this most laborious work, a whole band of earnest and painstaking students, under the guidance of Mrs. Cooper Oakley, have been my willing assistants. Without their aid, it would not have been possible to give the references, as often a whole book had to be searched through in order to find a paragraph of a few lines. This volume completes the papers left by HPB, with the exception of a few scattered articles that yet remain and that will be published in her own magazine, Lucifer. Her pupils are well aware that few will be found in the present generation to do justice to the occult knowledge of HPB and to her magnificent sweep of thought. But as she can wait to further generations for the justification of her greatness as a teacher, so can her pupils afford to wait for the justification of their trust. Annie Besant Introductory Power belongs to him who knows. This is a very old axiom. Knowledge, the first step to which is the power of comprehending the truth, of discerning the real from the false, is for those only who, having freed themselves from every prejudice and conquered their human conceit and selfishness, are ready to accept every and any truth, once it is demonstrated to them. Of such there are very few. The majority judge of a work according to the respective prejudices of its critics, who are guided in their turn by the popularity or unpopularity of the author, rather than by its own faults or merits. Outside the theosophical circle, therefore, the present volume is certain to receive at the hands of the general public a still colder welcome than its two predecessors have met with. In our day, no statement can hope for a fair trial, or even hearing, unless its arguments run on the line of legitimate and accepted inquiry, remaining strictly within the boundaries of official science or orthodox theology. Our age is a paradoxical anomaly. It is preeminently materialistic, and is preeminently pietistic. Our literature, our modern thought and progress, so-called, both run on these two parallel lines. So incongruously dissimilar, and yet both so popular and so very orthodox, each in its own way. He who presumes to draw a third line, as a hyphen of reconciliation between the two, has to be fully prepared for the worst. He will have his work mangled by reviewers mocked by the psychophants of science and church, misquoted by his opponents, and rejected even by the pious lending libraries. The absurd misconceptions in so-called cultured circles of society, of the ancient wisdom religion, Buddhism, after the admirably clear and scientifically presented explanations in esoteric Buddhism, are a good proof in point. They might have served as a caution even to those theosophists who, hardened in almost a lifelong struggle in the service of their cause, are neither timid with their pen, nor in the least appalled by dogmatic assumption and scientific authority. Yet, do what theosophical writers may, neither materialism nor doctrinal pietism will ever give their philosophy a fair hearing. Their doctrines will be systematically rejected, and their theories denied a place even in the ranks of those scientific ephemera the ever-shifting, working hypothesis of our day. To the advocate of the animalistic theory, our cosmogenetical and our anthropogenetical teachings are fairy tales at best. For to those who would shirk any moral responsibility, 
It seems certainly more convenient to accept descent from a common simian ancestor to see a brother in a dumb, tailless baboon than to acknowledge the fatherhood of a Petrus, the sons of God, and to have to recognize as a brother a starveling from the slums. Hold back, shout in their turn the pietists. You will never make of respectable church-going Christians esoteric Buddhists. Nor are we, in truth, in any way anxious to attempt the metamorphosis. But this cannot, nor shall it, prevent theosophists from saying what they have to say, especially to those who, in opposing to our doctrine modern science, so do not for our own fair sake, but only to ensure the success of their private hobbies and personal glorification. If we cannot prove many of our points, no more can they. Yet we may show how, instead of giving historical and scientific facts for the edification of those who, knowing less than they, look to scientists to do their thinking and form their opinions, the efforts of most of our scholars seem solely directed to killing ancient facts or distorting them into props to support their own special views. This will be done in no spirit of malice or even criticism as the writer readily admits that most of those she finds fault with stand immeasurably higher in learning than herself. But great scholarship does not preclude bias and prejudice, nor is it a safeguard against self-conceit, but rather the reverse. Moreover, it is but in the legitimate defense of our own statements, i.e. the vindication of ancient wisdom and its great truths, that we mean to take our great authorities to task. Indeed, unless the precaution of answering beforehand certain objections to the fundamental propositions in the present work be adopted, objections which are certain to be made on the authority of this, that, or another scholar concerning the esoteric character of all the archaic and ancient works on philosophy, our statements will be once more contradicted and even discredited. One of the main points in this volume is to indicate in the works of the old Aryan, Greek, and other philosophers of note as well as in all the world scriptures, the presence of a strong esoteric allegory and symbolism. Another of the objects is to prove that the key of interpretation, as furnished by the Eastern Hindu-Buddhistic canon of occultism, fitting as well the Christian Gospels as it does archaic Egyptian, Greek, Chaldean, Persian, and even Hebrew Mosaic books, must have been one common to all the nations. However divergent, may have been their respective methods and exoteric blinds. These claims are vehemently denied by some of the foremost scholars of our day. In his Edinburgh lectures, Professor Max Muller discarded the fundamental statement of the theosophists by pointing to the Hindu Shatras and Pandits, who know nothing of such esotericism. The learned Sanskrit scholar stated in so many words that there was no hidden meaning, no esoteric element in or blinds either in the Puranas or the Upanishads. Considering that the word Upanishad means, when translated, the secret doctrine, the assertion is, to say the least, extraordinary. Sir M. Monnier Williams again holds the same view with regard to Buddhism. To hear him is to regard Gautama, the Buddha, as an enemy of every pretense to esoteric teachings. He himself never taught them. All such pretenses to occult learning and magic powers are due to the later Arhats, the subsequent followers of the Light of Asia. Professor B. Jowett, again, as contemptuously passes the sponge over the absurd interpretations of Plato's Timaeus, 
and the mosaic books by the Neoplatonists. There is not a breath of the Oriental Gnostic spirit of mysticism in Plato's dialogues, the Regis Professor of Greek tells us, nor any approach to science either. Finally, to cap the climax, Professor Sais, the Assyriologist, although he does not deny the actual presence in the Assyrian tablets and cuneiform literature of a hidden meaning, many of the sacred texts, so written as to be inintelligible only to the initiated, yet insists that the keys and glosses thereof are now in the hands of the Assyriologists. The modern scholars, he affirms, have in their possession clues to the interpretation of the esoteric records, which even the initiated priests of Chaldea did not possess. Thus, in the scholarly appreciation of our modern Orientalists and professors, science was in its infancy in the days of the Egyptian and Chaldean astronomers. Benini, the greatest grammarian in the world, was unacquainted with the art of writing. So was the Lord Buddha and everyone else in India until 300 BC. The grossest ignorance reigned in the days of the Indian Rishis, and even in those of Thales, Pythagoras, and Plato. Theosophists must indeed be superstitious ignoramuses to speak as they do, in the face of such learned evidence to the contrary. Truly, it looks as if, since the world's creation, there has been but one age of real knowledge on earth, the present age. In the misty twilight, in the grey dawn of history, stand the pale shadows of the old sages of world renown. They were hopelessly groping for the correct meaning of their own mysteries. The spirit whereof has departed without revealing itself to the hierophants, and has remained latent in space until the advent of the initiates of modern science and research. The noontide brightness of knowledge has only now arrived at the know-all, who, basking in the dazzling sun of induction, busies himself with his Penelopean task of working hypotheses, and loudly asserts his rights to universal knowledge. Can anyone wonder, then, that according to present views, the learning of the ancient philosopher, and even sometimes that of his direct successors in the past centuries, has ever been useless to the world and valueless to himself? For, as explained repeatedly in so many words, while the rishis and sages of old have walked far over the arid fields of myth and superstition, the medieval scholar, and even the average 18th century scientists, have always been more or less cramped by their supernatural religion and beliefs. True, it is generally conceded that some ancient and also medieval scholars, such as Pythagoras, Plato, Paracelsus, and Roger Bacon, followed by a host of glorious names, had indeed left not a few landmarks over precious mines of philosophy and unexplored loads of physical science. But then the actual excavation of these, the smelting of the gold and silver, and the cutting of the precious jewels they contain, are all due to the patient labors of the modern man of science. And it is not to the unparalleled genius of the latter that the ignorant and hitherto deluded world owes a correct knowledge of the real nature of the cosmos of the true origin of the universe and man, as revealed in the automatic and mechanical theories of the physicists, in accordance with strictly scientific philosophy. Before our cultured era, science was but a name, philosophy a delusion and a snare. According to the modest claims of contemporary authority on genuine science and philosophy, the tree of knowledge has only now sprung from the dead weeds of superstition. 
as a beautiful butterfly emerges from an ugly grub. We have therefore nothing for which to thank our forefathers. The ancients have it best prepared and fertilized the soil. It is the moderns who have planted the seeds of knowledge and reared the lovely plants called blank negation and sterile agnosticism. Such, however, is not the view taken by theosophists. They repeat what was stated twenty years ago. It is not sufficient to speak of the untenable conceptions of an uncultured past, Tyndall, of the parlor infantin, of the Vedic poets, Max Muller, of the absurdities of the Neoplatonists, Jowett, and of the ignorance of the Chaldeo-Assyrian-initiated priests with regard to their own symbols, when compared with the knowledge thereon of the British Orientalists, Sace. Such assumptions have to be proven by something more solid than the mere word of these scholars. For no amount of boastful arrogance can hide the intellectual quarries out of which the representations of so many modern philosophers and scholars have been carved. How many of the most distinguished European scientists have derived honor and credit from the mere dressing up of the ideas of these old philosophers, whom they are ever ready to disparage, is left to an impartial posterity to say. Thus it does seem not altogether untrue, as stated in Isis Unveiled, to say of certain Orientalists and scholars of dead languages, that they will allow their boundless conceit and self-opinionatedness to run away with their logic and reasoning powers, rather than concede to the ancient philosophers the knowledge of anything the modern do not know. As part of this work treats of the initiates and the secret knowledge imparted during the mysteries, the statements of those who, in spite of the fact that Plato was an initiate, maintain that no hidden mysticism is to be discovered in his work, have to be first examined. Too many of the present scholars, Greek and Sanskrit, are but too apt to forego facts in favor of their own preconceived theories based on personal prejudice. They conveniently forget, at every opportunity, not only the numerous changes in language, but also that the allegorical style in the writings of old philosophers and the secretiveness of the mystics had their raison d'etre, and that both the pre-Christian and post-Christian classical writers, the great majority at all events, were under the sacred obligation never to divulge the solemn secrets communicated to them in the sanctuaries. And this alone is sufficient to sadly mislead the translators and profane critics. But these critics will admit nothing of the kind, as will presently be seen. For over twenty-two centuries, everyone who has read Plato has been aware that, like most of the other Greek philosophers of note, he had been initiated, that therefore, being tied down by the Sodalian oath, he could speak of certain things only in veiled allegories. His reverence for the mysteries is unbounded. He openly confesses that he writes enigmatically, and we see him take the greatest precautions to conceal the true meaning of his words. Every time the subject touches the greater secrets of oriental wisdom, the cosmogony of the universe, or the ideal pre-existing world, Plato shrouds his philosophy in the profoundest darkness. His Timaeus is so confused that no one but an initiate can understand the hidden meaning. As already said in Isis Unveiled, the speculations of Plato in the banquet on the creation, or rather the evolution, of primordial men, and the essay on cosmogony in the Timaeus, must be taken allegorically if we accept them at all. It is this hidden Pythagorean meaning in Timaeus, Cratylus, and Parmenides 
and a few other trilogies and dialogues that the Neoplatonists ventured to expound, as far as the theurgical vow of secrecy would allow them. The Pythagorean doctrine that God is the universal mind, diffused through all things, and the dogma of the soul's immortality are the leading features in these apparently incongruous teachings. His piety and the great veneration he felt for the mysteries are sufficient warrant that Plato would not allow his indiscretion to get the better of that deep sense of responsibility which is felt by every adept. Constantly perfecting himself in perfect mysteries, a man in them alone becomes truly perfect, says he in the Phaedrus. He took no pains to conceal his displeasure that the mysteries had become less secret than formerly. Instead of profaning them by putting them within reach of the multitude, he would have guarded them with jealous care against all but the most earnest and worthy of his disciples. While mentioning the gods on every page, his monotheism is unquestionable, for the whole thread of his discourse indicates that, by the term gods, he means a class of beings lower in the scale than deities, and but one grade higher than men. Even Josephus perceived and acknowledged this fact despite the natural prejudice of his race. In his famous onslaught upon Apion, this historian says, Those, however, among the Greeks who philosophized in accordance with truth were not ignorant of anything, nor did they fail to perceive the chilling superficialities of the mythical allegories, on which account they justly despised them. By which thing Plato, being removed, says it is not necessary to admit any one of the other poets into the commonwealth and he dismisses Homer blandly, after having crowned him and pouring ungent upon him, in order that indeed he should not destroy by his myths the orthodox belief respecting one god. And this is the god of every philosopher, god infinite and impersonal. All this and much more, which there is no room here to quote, leads one to the undeniable certitude that a as all the sciences and philosophies were in the hands of the temple hierophants, Plato, as initiated by them, must have known them, and b. that logical inference alone is amply sufficient to justify anyone in regarding Plato's writings as allegories and dark sayings, veiling truths which he had no right to divulge. This established, how comes it that one of the best Greek scholars in England, Professor Jowett, the modern translator of Plato's works, seeks to demonstrate that none of the dialogues, including even the Timaeus, have any element of Oriental mysticism about them. Those who can discern the true spirit of Plato's philosophy will hardly be convinced by the arguments which the master of Belial College lays before his readers. Obscure and repulsive, to him the Timaeus may certainly be, but it is as certain that this obscurity does not arise, as the professor tells his public, in the infancy of physical science, but rather in its days of secrecy, not out of the confusion of theological, mathematical, and physiological notions, or out of the desire to conceive the whole of nature without any adequate knowledge of the parts. For mathematics and geometry were the backbone of occult cosmogony, hence of theology and the physiological notions of the ancient sages are being daily verified by science in our age. At least, to those who know how to read and understand the ancient esoteric works. The knowledge of the parts avails us little, if this knowledge only leads us the more to ignorance of the whole, or 
the nature and reason of the universal, as Plato called deity, and causes us to blunder most egregiously because of our boasted inductive methods. Plato may have been incapable of induction or generalization in the modern sense. He may have been ignorant also of the circulation of the blood, which we are told was absolutely unknown to him. But then there is not to disprove that he knew what blood is, and that is more than any modern physiologist or biologist can claim nowadays. Though a wider and far more generous margin for knowledge is allowed the physical philosopher by Professor Jowett than by nearly any other modern commentator and critic, nevertheless his criticism so considerably outweighs his laudation, that it may be as well to quote his own words to show clearly his bias. Thus he says, To bring sense under the control of reason, to find some way through the labyrinth or chaos of appearances, either the highway of mathematics or more devious paths suggested by the analogy of man with the world and of the world with man, to see that all things have a cause and are tending towards an end. This is the spirit of the ancient physical philosopher. But we neither appreciate the conditions of knowledge to which he was subjected, nor have the ideas which fastened upon his imagination the same hold upon us. For he is hovering between matter and mind. He is under the dominion of abstractions. His impressions are taken almost at random from the outside of nature. He sees the light, but not the objects which are revealed by the light. And he brings into juxtaposition things which to us appear wide as the poles asunder, because he finds nothing between them. The last proposition but one must evidently be distasteful to the modern physical philosopher who sees the objects before him, but fails to see the light of the universal mind, which reveals them, i.e., who proceeds in a diametrically opposite way. Therefore, the learned professor comes to the conclusion that the ancient philosopher, whom he now judges from Plato's Timaeus, must have acted in a decidedly unphilosophical and even irrational way. For he passes abruptly from persons to ideas and numbers, and from ideas and persons to numbers. He confuses subject and object, first and final causes, and in dreaming of geometrical figures is lost in a flux of sense. And now an effort of mind is required for our parts in order to understand his double language, or to apprehend the twilight character of the knowledge and the genius of ancient philosophers which, under such conditions, seem by divine power in many instances to have anticipated the truth. Whether such conditions imply those of ignorance and mental solitude in the genius of ancient philosophers, or something else, we do not know. But what we do know is that the meaning of the sentences which we have italicized is perfectly clear. Whether the Regius, professor of Greek, believes or disbelieves in a hidden sense of geometrical figures and of the esoteric jargon, he nevertheless admits the presence of a double language in the writings of these philosophers. Thence he admits a hidden meaning which must have had an interpretation. Why then does he flatly contradict his own statement on the very next page? And why should he deny to the Timaeus that preeminently Pythagorean mystic dialogue any occult meaning and take such pains to convince his readers that the influence which the Timaeus has exercised upon posterity is partly due to a misunderstanding? The following quotation from his introduction is in direct contradiction with the paragraph which precedes it, as above quoted. 
In the supposed depths of his dialogue, the Neoplatonists found hidden meanings and connections with the Jewish and Christian scriptures, and out of them they dictated doctrines quite at variance with the spirit of Plato, believing that he was inspired by the Holy Ghost, or had received his wisdom from Moses. They seemed to find in his writings the Christian Trinity, the Word, the Church, and the Neoplatonists had a method of interpretation which could elicit any meaning out of any words. They were really incapable of distinguishing between the opinions of one philosopher and another, or between the serious thoughts of Plato and his passing fancies. But there is no danger of the modern commentators on the Timaeus falling into the absurdity of the Neoplatonists. No danger whatever, of course, for the simple reason that the modern commentators have never had the key to the occult interpretations. And before another word is said in defense of Plato and the Neoplatonists, the learned master of Balliol College ought to be respectfully asked, what does or can he know of the esoteric canon of interpretation? By the term canon is here meant that key which is communicated orally from mouth to ear, by the master to the disciple, or by the hierophant to the candidate for initiation. This from time immemorial throughout a long series of ages, during which the inner, not public, Mysteries were the most sacred institution of every land. Without such a key, no correct interpretation of either the dialogues of Plato or any scripture, from the Vedas to Homer, from the Zen to Vesta to the Mosaic books, is possible. How then can the Reverend Dr. Jowett know that the interpretations made by the Neoplatonists of the various sacred books of the nations were absurdities? Where again has he found an opportunity of studying these interpretations? History shows that all such works were destroyed by the Christian Church Fathers and their fanatical catechumens, wherever they were found. To say that such men as Ammonius, a genius and a saint, whose learning and holy life earned for him the title of Theodactos, God-taught, such men as Plotinus, Pophryri, and Proclus, were incapable of distinguishing between the opinions of one philosopher and another or between the serious thoughts of Plato and his fancies, is to assume an untenable position for a scholar. It amounts to saying that, a, scores of the most famous philosophers, the greatest scholars and sages of Greece and of the Roman Empire were dull fools, and b, that all the other commentators, lovers of Greek philosophy, some of them the acutest intellects of the age, who do not agree with Mr. Dr. Jowett, were also fools and no better than those whom they admire. The patronizing tone of the last above-quoted passage is modulated with the most naive conceit, remarkable even in our age of self-glorification and mutual admiration cliques. We have to compare the professor's views with those of some other scholars. Says Professor Alexander Wilder of New York, one of the best Platonists of the day, speaking of Ammonius, the founder of the Neoplatonic school, his deep spiritual intuition, his extensive learning, his familiarity with the Christian fathers, Pantaneus, Clement, and Athenagoras, and with the most erudite philosophers of the time, all fitted him for the labor which he performed so thoroughly. He was successful in drawing to his views the greatest scholars and public men of the Roman Empire, who had little taste for wasting time in dialectic pursuits or superstitious observances. The results of his ministration are perceptible at the present day in every country of the Christian world, 
every prominent system of doctrine now bearing the marks of his plastic hand. Every ancient philosophy has had its votaries among the moderns, and even Judaism had taken upon itself changes which were suggested by the God-taught Alexandrian. He was a man of rare learning and endowments, of blameless life and amiable disposition. His almost superhuman ken and many excellencies won for him the title of Theodakos, but he followed the modest example of Pythagoras and only assumed the title of Philolethian, or lover of truth. It would be happy for truth and fact were our modern scholars to follow as modestly in the steps of their great predecessors, but not they Philolethians. Moreover, we know that, like Orpheus, Pythagoras, Confucius, Socrates, and Jesus himself, Ammonius committed nothing to writing. Instead, he communicated his most important doctrines to persons duly instructed and disciplined, imposing on them the obligations of secrecy as was done before him by Zoroaster and Pythagoras, and in the mysteries. Except a few treatises of his disciples, we have only the declarations of his adversaries from which to ascertain what he actually taught. It is from the biased statements of such adversaries, probably, that the learned Oxford translator of Plato's dialogues came to the conclusion that that which was truly great and truly characteristic of him, Plato, his effort to realize and connect abstractions was not understood by them, the Neoplatonists, at all. He states contemptuously enough for the ancient methods of intellectual analysis that, in the present day, an ancient philosopher is to be interpreted from himself and by the contemporary history of thought. This is like saying that the ancient Greek canon of proportion, if ever found, and the Athena Promachus of Phidias have to be interpreted in the present day from the contemporary history of architecture and sculpture, from the Albert Hall and Memorial Monument, and the hideous Madonnas and crinolines sprinkled over the fair face of Italy. Professor Jowett remarks that mysticism is not criticism. No, but neither is criticism always fair and sound judgment. And such art, our critic of the Neoplatonists, his Greek scholarship notwithstanding, lacks from A to Z, nor has he, very evidently, the key to the true spirit of the mysticism of Pythagoras and Plato, since he denies even in the Timaeus an element of Oriental mysticism, and seeks to show Greek philosophy reacting upon the East, forgetting that the truth is the exact reverse, that is the deeper and more pervading spirit of Orientalism, that had, through Pythagoras and his own initiation into the mysteries, penetrated into the very depths of Plato's soul. But Dr. Jowett does not see this, nor is he prepared to admit that anything good or rational, in accordance with the contemporary history of thought, could ever come out of that Nazareth of the pagan mysteries, nor even that there is anything to interpret of a hidden nature in the Timaeus or any other dialogue. For him, the so-called mysticism of Plato is purely Greek, arising out of his imperfect knowledge and high aspirations and is the growth of an age in which philosophy is not wholly separated from poetry and mythology. Among several other equally erroneous propositions, it is especially the assumptions, a. that Plato was entirely free from any element of Eastern philosophy in his writings, and b. that every modern scholar, without being a mystic and a Kabbalist himself, can pretend to judge of ancient esotericism, which we mean to combat. 
To do this, we have to produce more authoritative statements than our own would be, and bring the evidence of other scholars as great as Dr. Jowett, if not greater, specialists in their subjects, moreover, to bear on and to destroy the arguments of the Oxford Regis, professor of Greek. That Plato was undeniably an ardent admirer and follower of Pythagoras, no one will deny. And it is equally undeniable, as matter has it, that Plato had inherited on the one hand his doctrines, and on the other had drawn his wisdom from the same sources as the Samian philosopher. And the doctrines of Pythagoras are oriental to the backbone, and even Brahmanical. For this great philosopher ever pointed to the Far East as the source whence he derived his information and philosophy. And Colebrook shows that Plato makes the same profession in his epistles, and says that he has taken his teachings from ancient and sacred doctrines. Furthermore, the ideas of both Pythagoras and Plato coincide too well with the systems of India and with Zoroastrianism to admit any doubt of their origin by anyone who has some acquaintance with these systems. Again, Pantaneus, Athenagoras, and Clement were thoroughly instructed in the Platonic philosophy and comprehended its essential unity with the Oriental systems. The history of Pantaneus and his contemporaries may give the key to the Platonic, and at the same time Oriental elements that predominate so strikingly in the Gospels over the Jewish scriptures. Some Papers on the Bearing of Occult Philosophy on Life Note Papers 1, 2, and 3 of the following were written by HPB and were circulated privately during her lifetime, but they were written with the idea that they would be published after a time. They are papers intended for students rather than for the ordinary reader and will repay careful study and thought. The notes of some oral teaching were written down by some of her pupils and were partially corrected by her but no attempt has been made to relieve them of their fragmentary character. She had intended to make them the basis for written papers similar to the first three, but her failing health rendered this impossible, and they are published with her consent, the time for restricting them to a limited circle having expired. Annie Besant Paper 1. A Warning there is a strange law in occultism which has been ascertained and proven by thousands of years of experience. Nor has it failed to demonstrate itself, almost in every case, during the years that the Theosophical Society has been in existence. As soon as anyone pledges himself as a probationer, certain occult effects ensue. Of these, the first is the throwing outward of everything latent in the nature of the man his faults, habits, qualities, or subdued desires, whether good, bad, or indifferent. For instance, if a man be vain or a sensualist or ambitious, whether by atavism or by karmic heirloom, those vices are sure to break out, even if he has hitherto successfully concealed and repressed them. They will come to the front irrepressibly, and he will have to fight a hundred times harder than before, until he kills all such tendencies in himself. On the other hand, if he be good, generous, chaste, and abstemious, or has any virtue hitherto latent and concealed in him, it will work its way out as irrepressibly as the rest. Thus a civilized man who hates to be considered a saint, and therefore assumes a mask, will not be able to conceal his true nature, whether base or noble. This is an immutable law in the domain of the occult. Its action is the more marked the more earnest and sincere the desire of the candidate, 
and the more deeply he has felt the reality and importance of his pledge. The ancient occult axiom, Know Thyself, must be familiar to every student. But few, if any, have apprehended the real meaning of this wise exhortation of the Delphic Oracle. You all know your earthly pedigree, but who of you has ever traced all the links of heredity, astral, psychic, and spiritual, which go to make you what you are? Many have written and expressed their desire to unite themselves with their higher ego, yet none seem to know the indissoluble link connecting their higher egos with the one universal self. For all purposes of occultism, whether practical or purely metaphysical, such knowledge is absolutely requisite. It is proposed, therefore, to begin these prayers by showing this connection in all directions with the worlds, absolute, archetypal, spiritual, monazaic, psychic, astral, and elemental. Before, however, we can touch upon the higher worlds, archetypal, spiritual, and monazic, we must master the relations of the seven, the terrestrial world, the lower Prakriti, or Malkuth, as in the Kabbalah, to the worlds or planes which immediately follow it. Om. Om, says the Aryan adept, the son of the fifth race, who with this syllable begins and ends his salutation to the human being his conjuration of, or appeal to, non-human presences. Om Mani, murmurs the Turanian adept, the descendant of the fourth race, and after pausing he adds, Padmi Hum. This famous invocation is very erroneously translated by the Orientalists as meaning, O the jewel in the lotus, for although literally Om is a syllable sacred to the deity, Padmi means in the lotus, and Mani is any precious stone still neither the words themselves nor their symbolical meaning are thus really correctly rendered. In this, the most sacred of all Eastern formulas, not only has every syllable a secret potency producing a definite result, but the whole invocation has several different meanings and can produce seven distinct results, each of which may differ from the others. The seven meanings and the seven results depend upon the intonation which is given to the whole formula and to each of its syllables. And even the numerical value of the letters is added to or diminished according as such or another rhythm is made use of. Let the student remember that, that number underlies form, and number guides sound. Number lies at the root of the manifested universe. Numbers and harmonious proportions guide the first differentiations of homogeneous substance into heterogeneous elements. And number and numbers set limits to the formative hand of nature. Know the corresponding numbers of the fundamental principle of every element and its sub-elements, learn their interaction and behavior on the occult side of manifesting nature, and the law of correspondences will lead you to the discovery of the greatest mysteries of macrocosmical life. But to arrive at the macrocosmical, you must begin by the microcosmical, i.e., you must study man, the microcosm, in this case as physical science does, inductively, proceeding from particulars to universals. At the same time, however, since a keynote is required to analyze and comprehend any combination of differentiations of sound, we must never lose sight of the Platonic method, which starts with one general view of all, and descends from the universal to the individual. This is the method adopted in mathematics, the only exact science that exists in our day. Let us study man, therefore, but if we separate him for one moment from the universal whole, or view him in isolation, from a single aspect, apart from the heavenly man, the universe symbolized by Adam Cadmon, or his equivalents in every philosophy, 
we shall either land in black magic or fail most ingloriously in our attempt. Thus the mystic sentence, Om Mani Padmi Hum, when rightly understood, instead of being composed of the almost meaningless words, O the jewel in the lotus, contains a reference to this indissoluble union between man and the universe, rendered in seven different ways, and having the capability of seven different applications to as many planes of thought and action. From whatever aspect we examine it, it means, I am that I am. I am in thee, and thou art in me. In this conjunction and close, union the good and pure man becomes a god. Whether consciously or unconsciously, he will bring about, or innocently cause to happen, unavoidable results. In the first case of an initiate, of course an adept of the right-hand path alone is meant, he can guide a beneficent or protecting current, and thus benefit and protect individuals and even whole nations. In the second case, although quite unaware of what he is doing, the good man becomes a shield to whomsoever he is with. Such is the fact, but its how and why have to be explained. And this can be done only when the actual presence and potency of numbers and sounds, and hence in words and letters, have been rendered clear. The formula, Om Mani Padme Hum, has been chosen as an illustration on account of its almost infinite potency in the mouth of an adept, and of its potentiality when pronounced by any man. Be careful, all you who read this, do not use these words in vain, or when in anger, lest you become yourself the first sacrificial victim or what is worse, endanger those whom you love. The profane Orientalist, who all his life skims mere externals, will tell you flippantly, and laughing at the superstition, that in Tibet this sentence is the most powerful six-syllable incantation, and is said to have been delivered to the nations of Central Asia by Padmapani, the Tibetan Chenrisi. But who is Padmapani in reality? Each of us must recognize him for himself whenever he is ready. Each of us has within himself the jewel in the lotus. Call it Padmapani, Krishna, Buddha, Christ, or whatever name we give it to our divine self. The exoteric story runs thus. The Supreme Buddha, or Amitabha, they say, at the hour of the creation of man, caused a rosy ray of light to issue from his right eye. The ray emitted a sound and became Padmapani, Bodhisattva. Then the deity allowed to stream forth from his left eye a blue ray of light, which, becoming incarnate in the two virgins' dolma, acquired the power to enlighten the minds of living beings. Amitba then called the combination, which forthwith took up its abode in man. Om Mani Padme Hum. I am the jewel in the lotus, and in it I will remain. Then Padmapani, though one in the lotus, vowed never to cease working until he had made humanity feel his presence in itself and had thus saved it for the misery of rebirth. He vowed to perform the feat before the end of the Kalpa, adding that, in case of failure, he wished that his head should split into numberless fragments. The Kalpa closed, but humanity felt him not within its cold, evil heart. Then Padmapani's head split and was shattered into a thousand fragments. Moved with compassion, the deity reformed the pieces into ten heads, three white and seven of various colors and since that day man has become a perfect number, or ten. In this allegory, the potency of sound, color, and number is so ingeniously introduced as to veil the real esoteric meaning. To the outsider it reads like one of the many meaningless fairy tales of creation, but is pregnant with spiritual and divine, physical and magical meaning, 
from Imatba, no color, or the white glory, are born the seven differential colors of the prism. These each emit a corresponding sound, forming the seven of the musical scale. As geometry among the mathematical sciences is especially related to architecture, and also proceeding to universals, to cosmogony, so the ten yods of the Pythagorean tetrad, or tetractes, being made to symbolize the macrocosm, the microcosm, or man, its image, had also to be divided into ten points. For this nature herself is provided, as will be seen. But before this statement can be proved and the perfect correspondences between the macrocosm and the microcosm demonstrated, a few words of explanation are necessary. To the learner who would study the esoteric sciences with their double object, a. Of proving man to be identical in spiritual and physical essence with both the absolute principle and with God in nature, and b. Of demonstrating the presence in him of the same potential powers as exist in the creative forces in nature, to such a one perfect knowledge of the correspondences between colors, sounds, and numbers in the first requisite. As already said, the sacred formula of the Far East, Om Mani Padmi Hum, is the one best calculated to make these correspondential qualities and functions clear to the learner. In the allegory of Padmipani, the jewel, or spiritual ego, in the lotus, or the symbol of androgynous man, the numbers 3, 4, 7, 10, as synthesizing the unit, man, are prominent, as I have already said. It is on the thorough knowledge and comprehension of the meaning and potency of these numbers, in their various and multiform combinations and in their mutual correspondences with sounds or words, and colors or rates of motion, represented in physical science by vibrations, that the progress of a student in occultism depends. Therefore, we must begin with the first initial word, OM, or AM. OM is a blind. The sentence OM MANI PADMI HAM is not a six, but a seven-syllable phrase, as the first syllable is double in its right pronunciation and triple in its essence. Aum. It represents the forever concealed primeval triune differentiation, not from, but in the one absolute, and is therefore symbolized by the four, or the tetractus. In the metaphysical world, it is the unit ray, or atman. It is the atman, the highest spirit in man, which in conjunction with Buddha and manas, is called the upper triad, or trinity. Thus, triad with its four lower human principles is moreover enveloped with an auric atmosphere, like the yolk of an egg, the future embryo, by the albumen and shell. This, to the perceptions of higher beings from other planes, makes of each individuality an oval sphere of more or less radiancy. To show the student the perfect correspondence between the birth of cosmos, a world, a planetary being, or a child of sin and earth, a more definite and clear description must be given. Those acquainted with physiology will understand it better than others. Who, having read the Vishnu or other Purana, is not familiar with the exoteric allegory of the birth of Brahma, male, female, and the egg of the world, Hiran Yagarbha, surrounded by its seven zones, or rather planes, which in the world of form and matter become seven and fourteen lokas. Number seven and fourteen reappearing on occasion requires. Without going into the secret analysis, the Hindus have from time immemorial compared the matrix of the universe, and also the solar matrix, to the female uterus. It is written of the former, its womb is vast as the Meru, and 
The future mighty oceans lay asleep in the waters that filled its cavities, the continents, seas and mountains, the stars, planets, the gods, demons, and mankind. The whole resembled in its inner and outer coverings, the coconut-filled interior with pulp, and covered externally with husk and rind, vast as Meru, says the texts. Meru was its amnion, and the other mountains were its chorion. Adds a verse in the Vishnu Purana. In the same way as man born in his mother's womb, as Brahma is surrounded, in exoteric traditions, by seven layers within and seven without the mundane egg, so is the embryo, the first or seventh layer, according to the end from which we begin to count. Thus, just as esotericism in its cosmogony enumerates seven inner and seven outer layers, so physiology notes the contents of the universe as seven also. Although it is completely ignorant of this being a copy of what takes place in the universal matrix, these contents are 1. Embryo 2. Amniotic fluid immediately surrounding the embryo. 3. Amnion, a membrane derived from the fetus, which contains the fluid. 4. Umbilical vesicle, which serves to convey nourishment originally to the embryo and to nourish it. 5. Allentois, a protrusion from the embryo in the form of a closed bag, which spreads itself between 3 and 7 in the midst of 6, and which, after being specialized into the placenta, serves to conduct nourishment to the embryo. 6. Interspace between 3 and 7. The amnion and chorion. Filled with an albuminous fluid. 7. Chorion, or outer layer. Now each of these seven contents severally corresponds with and is formed after an antitype. One on each of the seven planes of being, with which in their turn correspond the seven states of matter and all other forces, sensational or fictional, in nature. The following is a bird's-eye view of the seven correspondential contents of the wombs of nature and of woman. We may contrast them thus. 1. Cosmic process, the mathematical point, called the cosmic seed, the monad of Leibniz, which contains the whole universe as the acorn, the oak. This is the first bubble on the surface of boundless homogeneous substance, or space, the bubble of differentiation in its incipient stage. It is the beginning of the Orphic, or Brahma's egg. It corresponds in astrology and astronomy to the sun. Human process. The terrestrial embryo, which contains in it the future man with all its potentialities. In the series of principles of the human system, it is the Atman, or the super-spiritual principle, just as in the physical solar system, it is the sun. 2. Cosmic process. This vis vita of our solar system exudes from the sun. Human process. The amniotic fluid exudes from the embryo. A. The cosmic process. It is called when referred to the higher planes, akasha. Human process. It is called on the plane of matter, prana. The B. Cosmic process. It proceeds from the ten divinities, the ten numbers of the sun, which is itself the perfect number. These are the dis, in reality space, the forces spread in space, three of which are contained in the sun's Atman, or seventh principle, and seven are the rays shot out by the sun. Human process. It proceeds, taking its source in the universal one life, from the heart of man and booty, over which the seven solar rays, gods, preside. Three, cosmic process. The ether of space, which in its external aspect, is the plastic crust which is supposed to envelop the sun. 
On the higher plane, it is the whole universe as the third differentiation of evolving substance, Mula Prakriti, becoming Prakriti. Human process, the amnion, the membrane containing the amniotic fluid and the enveloping the embryo. After the birth of man, it becomes the third layer, so to say, of this magneto-vital aura. A. Cosmic process. It corresponds mystically to the manifested mahat, or the intellect, or soul of the world. Human process. Manas, the third principle, counting from above, or the human soul in man. 4. Cosmic process. The sidereal contents of ether. The substantial parts of it, unknown to modern science, represented as follows. Human process. Umbilical vesicle. Serving as science teaches, to nourish the embryo originally, but as occult science evers, to carry to the fetus by osmosis the cosmic influences extraneous to the mother. A. Cosmic process. In occult and Kabbalistic mysteries by elementals. Human process. In the grown man, these become the feeders of Kama, over which they preside. B. The cosmic process. In physical astronomy by meteors, comets, and all kinds of casual and phenomenal cosmic bodies. Human process. In the physical man his passions and emotions, the moral meteors and comets of human nature. 5. Cosmic process, life currents in ether, having their origin in the sun, the canals through which the vital principle of that ether, the blood of the cosmic body, passes to nourish everything on earth and on the other planets. From the minerals, which are thus made to grow and become specialized, from the plants, which are thus fed, to animal and man, to whom life is thus imparted. Human process, the alentois, a protrusion from the embryo, which spreads itself between the amnion and chorion. It is supposed to conduct the nourishment from the mother to the embryo. It corresponds to the life principle, prana, or eva. Six, cosmic process. The double radiation, psychic and physical, which radiates from the cosmic seed and expands around the whole cosmos, as well as around the solar system and every planet. In occultism, it is called the upper divine and the lower material, astral light. Human process, the alentois is divided into two layers. The interspace between the amnion and the chorion contains the alentois and also the albuminous fluid. 7. Cosmic process, the outer crust of every sidereal body, the shell of the mundane egg, or the sphere of our solar system, of our earth, and of every man and animal. In sidereal space, either proper or the terrestrial plane, Air, which again is built in seven layers. Human process, the chorion, or the zona pellucida, the globular object called blastodermic vesicle, the outer and the inner layers of the membrane of which go to form the physical man. The outer, or ectoderm, forms his epidermis, the inner, or endoderm, his muscles, bones, etc. Man's skin, again, is composed of seven layers. A. Cosmic process. The primordial potential world stuff becomes, for the Manventaric period, the permanent globe or globes. Human process. The primitive becomes the permanent Chorian. Even in the evolution of the races, we see the same order as in nature and man. Placental animal man became such only after the separation of sexes in the third root race. In the physiological evolution, the placenta is fully formed and functional only after the third month of uterine life. Let us put aside such human conceptions as a personal God, and hold to the purely divine, to that which underlies all and everything in boundless nature. It is called by its Sanskrit esoteric name in the Vedas, 
tat or that, a term for the unknowable rootless root. If we do so, we may answer these seven questions of the Esoteric Catechism. Thus, 1. Question. What is the eternal absolute? Answer. That. 2. Question. How came cosmos into being? A. Through that. 3. Question. How or what will it be when it falls back into pralaya? Answer. In that. 4. Question. Whence all the animate and, suppositionally, the inanimate nature? Answer. From that. 5. Question. What is the substance and essence of which the universe is formed? Answer. That. Into what has it been and will be again and again resolved? Answer. Into that. 7. Question. Is that then both the instrumental and material cause of the universe? Answer. What else is it or can it be than that? As the universe, the macrocosm and the microcosm are ten, why should we divide man into seven principles? This is the reason why the perfect number ten is divided into two, in their completeness, i.e. super-spiritually and physically. The forces are ten, to wit, three on the subjective and inconceivable, and seven on the objective plane. Bear in mind that I am now giving you the description of the two opposite poles. A. The primordial triangle, which as soon as that is reflected itself in the heavenly man, the highest or the lowest seven, disappears returning into silence and darkness. And B. The astral paradynamic man, whose monad, Atma, is also represented by a triangle, as it has to become a ternary in conscious devachanic interludes. The purely terrestrial man being reflected in the universe of matter, so to say, upside down, the upper triangle, wherein the creative ideation and the subjective potentiality of the formative faculty resides, is shifted in the man of clay below the seven. Thus three of the ten, containing in the archetypal world only ideative and paradynamical potentiality, i.e. existing in possibility, not in action, are in fact one. The potency of formative creation resides in the Logos, the synthesis of the seven forces or rays, which becomes forthwith the quaternary, the sacred tetractus. This process is repeated in man, in whom the lower physical triangle becomes, in conjunction with the female one, the male-female creator or generator. The same on still a lower plane in the animal world, a mystery above, a mystery below, truly. This is how the upper and highest and the lower and most animals stand in mutual relation. Diagram 1. First, macrocosm and its three, seven, or ten centers of creative forces. There's a triangle, A, B, C, one and three. A, B, C, the unknowable. A, sexless, unmanifested logos. B, potential wisdom. C, universal ideation. And there's an egg, Purusha, Pakrit, Mahat, spiritual, psycho, astral, material plane. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, manifested logos. So A, creative logos. B, eternal substance. C, spirit. A, B, C, this is Pradhana, undifferentiated matter in Sankhya philosophy, or good, evil, and chaotic darkness. Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas, neutralizing each other. When differentiated, they become the seven creative potencies. Spirit, substance, and fire, stimulating matter to form itself. D. The spiritual forces acting in matter. Second, microcosm, the inner man, and his three, seven, or ten centers of potential forces. Atman, through exoterically reckoned as the seventh principle, is no individual principle at all, and belongs to the universal soul, 
Seven is the auric egg, the magnetic sphere round every human and animal being. One, Bodhi, the vehicle of Atma. Two, Manas, the vehicle of Bodhi. Three, the lower Manas, the upper and lower Manas are two aspects of the one and the same principle. And four, Kama Rupa, its vehicle. Five, Prana, life. And six, Linga, Sharia, its vehicle. One, two, three are the three hypostases of Atman, its contact with nature and man being the fourth, making it a coordinary, or tetractus, the higher self. One, two, three, four, five, six, these six principles acting on four different planes and having their auric envelope on the seventh, Vita Infra, are those used by the adepts of the right hand, or white magicians. Third, microcosm, the physical man and his ten orifices, or centers of action. One, booty, right eye. Three, lower manas, right ear. Five, life principle, right nostril. Seven, the organ of the creative logos, the mouth. Eight, nine, ten, as this lower ternary has a direct connection with the higher atmic triad and its three aspects, creative, preservative, and destructive, or rather, regenerative. The abuse of the corresponding functions is the most terrible of karmic sins the sin against the Holy Ghost with the Christians. 2. Manas, left eye. 4. Kamarupa, left ear. 6. Life vehicle, left nostril. 7. The paradigm of the tenth, creative, orifice in the lower triad. These physical organs are used by only the Dugpas in black magic. In this diagram we see that physical man, or his body, does not share in the direct pure waves of the divine essence, which flows from the one in three the unmanifested through the manifested logos, the upper face in the diagram. Purusha, the primeval spirit, touches the human head and stops there. But the spiritual man, the synthesis of the seven principles, is directly connected with it. And here are a few words ought to be said about the usual exoteric enumeration of the principles. At first, an approximate division only was made and given out. Esoteric Buddhism begins with Atma, the seventh, and ends with the physical body, the first. Now neither Atma, which is no individual principle, but a radiation from and one with the unmanifested logos, nor the body, which is the material rind or shell of the spiritual man, can be in strict truth referred to as principles. Moreover, the chief principle of all, and not even mentioned heretofore, is the luminous egg, Hiran Yargarbha or the invisible magnetic sphere in which every man is enveloped. It is the direct emanation, A, from the atmic ray into its triple aspect of creator, preserver, and destroyer, regenerator, and B, from buddhimanas. The seventh aspect of this individual aura is the faculty of assuming the form of its body and becoming the radiant, the luminous, a godis. It is this, strictly speaking, which at times becomes the form called mayavi rupa, Therefore, as explained in the second phase of the diagram, the astral man, the spiritual man consists of only five principles, as taught by the Vedantins, who substitute tacitly for the physical this sixth or auric body, and merge the dual manas, the dual mind or consciousness, into one. Thus they speak of the five koshas, sheaths or principles, and call atma the sixth yet no principle. This is the secret of the late Subaro's criticism of the division in esoteric Buddhism. But let the student now learn the true esoteric enumeration. The reason why public mention of the auric body was not permitted was account on of its being so sacred. 
It is this body which, at death, assimilates the essence of buddhi and manas and becomes the vehicle of these spiritual principles, which are not objective, and then, with, with the full radiation of atma upon it, ascends as manas tajazi into the devatronic state. Therefore, it is called by many names. It is the sutratma, the silver thread which incarnates from the beginning of Manvantara to the end, stringing upon itself the pearls of human existence. In other words, the spiritual aroma of every personality it follows through the pilgrimage of life. It is also the material from which the adept forms his astral bodies, from the agodis and the maivi rupa downwards. After the death of man, when its most ethereal particles have drawn into themselves the spiritual principles of Bodhi and the upper manas, and are illuminated with the radiance of Atma, the auric body remains either in the devachanic state of consciousness, or in the case of a full adept, prefers the state of Nirmanakaya, that is, one who has so purified his whole system that he is above even the divine illusion of a devachani. Such an adept remains in the astral, invisible plane connected with our earth, and henceforth moves and lives in the possession of all his principles except the kama rupa and physical body. In the case of the Devachani, the linga sharia, the alter ego of the body, which during life is within the physical envelope while the radiant aura is without, strengthened by the material particles which this aura leaves behind, remains closed to the dead body and outside it, and soon fades away. In the case of the full adept, the body alone becomes subject to dissolution, while the center of that force which was the seat of desires and passions disappears with its cause, the animal body. But during the life of the latter, all these centers are more or less active and in constant correspondence with their prototypes, the cosmic centers, and their microcosms, the principles. It is only through these cosmic and spiritual centers that the physical centers, the upper seven orifices and the lower triad, can benefit by their occult interaction, for these orifices or openings are channels conducting into the body the influences of the will of man, attracts and uses vis the cosmic forces. This will has, of course, to act primarily through the spiritual principles. To make this clear, let us take an example. In order to stop pain, let us say in the right eye, you have to attract to it the potent magnetism from that cosmic principle which corresponds to this eye and also to booty create by a powerful will effort an imaginary line of communication between the right eye and the booty, locating the latter as a center in the same part of the head. This line, though you may call it imaginary, is, once you succeed in seeing it with your mental eye and give it a shape and a color, is in truth as good as real. A rope in a dream is not a yet is. Moreover, according to the prismatic color with which you endow your line, so will the influence act. Now booty and mercury correspond with each other, and both are yellow, or radiant, and golden-colored. In the human system, the right eye corresponds with booty and mercury, and the left with the manas and Venus, or Lucifer. Thus, if your line is golden or silvery, it will stop the pain. If red, it will increase it, for red is the color of Kama and corresponds with Mars. Mental or Christian scientists have stumbled upon the effects without understanding the causes. Having found by chance the secret of producing such results owing to mental abstraction, then attribute them to their union with God, whether a personal or impersonal God they know best, whereas it is simply the effect of one or another principle. However it may be, they are on the path of discovery, although they must remain wandering for a long time to come. 
Let not esoteric students commit the same mistake. It has often been explained that neither the cosmic planes of substance nor even the human principles, with the exception of the lowest material plane or world in the physical body, which, as has been said, are no principles, can be located or thought of as being in space and time. As the former are seven and one, so are we seven and one, the same absolute soul of the world, which is both matter and non-matter, spirit and non-spirit, being and non-being. Impress yourselves with this idea, all those of you who would study the mysteries of self. Remember that with our physical senses alone at our command, none of us can hope to reach beyond gross matter. We can do so only through one or another of our seven spiritual senses, either by training or if one is a born seer. Yet even a clairvoyant possessed of such faculties, if not an adept, no matter how honest and sincere he may be, will, through his ignorance of the truths of occult science, be led by the visions he sees in the astral light, only to mistake for God or angels the denizens of those spheres, of which he may occasionally catch a glimpse, as witness Swedenborg and others. These seven senses of ours correspond with every other septenary in nature and in ourselves. Physically, though invisibly, the human auric envelope, the amnion of the physical man in every age of life, has seven layers, just as cosmic space and our physical epidermis have. It is this aura which, according to our mental and physical state of purity or impurity, either opens for us vistas into other worlds, or shuts us out altogether from anything but this three-dimensional world of matter. Each of our seven physical senses, two of which are still unknown to profane science, and also of our seven states of consciousness, viz. 1. Waking, 2. Waking dreaming, 3. Natural sleeping, 4. Induced or trance sleep, 5. Psychic, 6. Superpsychic, and 7. Purely spiritual, corresponds with one of the seven cosmic planes, develops and uses one of the seven supersenses and is connected directly in its use on the terrestrial spiritual plane, with the cosmic and divine center of force that gave it birth, and which is its direct creator. Each is also connected with, and under the direct influence of, one of the seven sacred planets. These belong to the lesser mysteries, whose followers were called mystai, the veiled, seeing that they were allowed to perceive things only through a mist, as it were, with the eyes closed while the initiates or seers of the greater mysteries were called apoptai, those who see things unveiled. It was the latter only who were taught the true mysteries of the zodiac and the relations and correspondences between its twelve signs, two secret, and the ten human orifices. The latter are now, of course, ten in the female, and only nine in the male. But this is merely an external difference. In the second volume of this work, it is stated that till the end of the third root race, when androgynous man separated into male and female, the ten orifices existed in the hermaphrodite, first potentially, then functionally. The evolution of the human embryo shows this. For instance, the only opening formed at first is its buccal cavity, a cloaca communicating with the anterior extremity of the intestine. These become later the mouth and the posterior orifice the logos differentiating and emanating gross matter on the lower plane in occult parlance. The difficulty which some students will experience in reconciling the correspondences between the zodiac and the orifices can be easily explained. Magic is coeval with the third root race, which began by creating through Kriya Shakti and ended by generating its species in the present way. 
woman being left with the full or perfect cosmic number 10, the divine number of Jehovah, was deemed higher and more spiritual than man. In Egypt, in days of old, the marriage service contained an article that the woman should be the lady of the Lord, and real Lord over him, the husband pledging himself to be obedient to his wife, for the production of alchemical results such as the elixir of life and the philosopher's stone, for the spiritual help of the woman was needed by the male alchemist. But woe to the alchemist who should take in this dead-letter sense of physical union. Such sacrilege would become black magic and be followed by certain failure. The true alchemist of old took aged women to help them, carefully avoiding the younger ones, and if any of them happened to be married, they treated their wives for months both before and during their operations as sisters. The error of crediting the ancients with knowing only ten of the zodiacal signs is explained in Isis Unveiled. The ancients did know of twelve, but viewed these signs differently from ourselves. They took neither Virgo nor Scorpio singly into consideration, but regarded them as two in one, since they were made to refer directly and symbolically to the primeval dual man and his separation into sexes. During the reformation of the Zodiac, Libra was added as the twelfth sign, though it is simply an equilibrating sign, at the turning point, the mystery of separated man. Let the student learn all this well. Meanwhile, we have to recapitulate what has been said. One. Each human being is an incarnation of his God, in other words, one with his Father in heaven, just as Jesus, an initiate, is made to say. As many men on earth, so many gods in heaven, and yet these gods are in reality one, for at the end of every period of activity, they are withdrawn, like the rays of the setting sun, into the parent luminary, the non-manifested logos, which in its turn is merged into the one absolute. Shall we call these fathers of ours, whether individually or collectively, and under any circumstances, our personal God? Occultism answers, never. All that an average man can know of his father is what he knows of himself, true and within himself. The soul of his heavenly father is incarnated in him. The soul is himself. If he be successful in assimilating the divine individuality while in his physical, animal shell. As to the spirit thereof, as we expect to be heard by the Absolute, our prayers and supplications are vain, unless to potential words we add potent acts, and make the aura which surrounds each one of us so pure and divine that the God within us may act outwardly, or in other words, become as it were an extraneous potency. Thus have initiates, saints, and very holy and pure men been enabled to help others as well as themselves in the hour of need and produce what are foolishly called miracles, each by the help and with the aid of the God within himself, which he alone has enabled to act on the outward plane. 2. The word Aum or Am, which corresponds to the upper triangle, is pronounced by a very holy and pure man, will draw out or awaken not only the less exalted potencies residing in the planetary spaces and elements, but even his higher self, or the Father within him. Pronounced by an averagely good man, in the correct way it will help to strengthen him morally, especially if between two ohms he meditates intently upon the ohm within him, concentrating all his attention on the ineffable glory. But woe to the man who pronounces it after the commission of some far-reaching sin. He will only thereby attract to his own impure photosphere invisible presences and forces which could not otherwise break through the divine envelope. 
Aum is the original of Amen. Now, Amen is not a Hebrew term, but like the word Hallelujah, was borrowed by the Jews and Greeks from the Chaldees. The latter word is often found repeated in certain magical inscriptions upon cups and urns among the Babylonian and Ninevean relics. Amen does not mean so be it or verily, but signified in hoary antiquity almost the same as Om. The Jewish Tanaim, initiates, used it for the same reason as the Aryan adepts use Om. And with a like success, the numerical value of Amen in Hebrew letters being 91, the same as the full value of YHVH, 26, and Adonai, 65 or 91. Both words mean the affirmation of the being or existence of the sexless Lord within us. 3. Esoteric science teaches that every sound in the visible world awakens its corresponding sound in the invisible realms and arouses to action some force or other on the occult side of nature. Moreover, every sound corresponds to a color and a number, a potency, spiritual, psychic, or physical, and to a sensation on some plane. All these find an echo in every one of the so far developed elements, and even on the terrestrial plane, in the lives that swarm in the terrene atmosphere, thus prompting them to action. Thus a prayer, unless pronounced mentally and addressed to one's father, in the silence and solitude of one's closet, must have more frequently disastrous than beneficial results, seeing that the masses are entirely ignorant to the potent effects which they thus produce. To produce good effects, the prayer must be uttered by one who knows how to make himself heard in silence, when it is no longer a prayer but becomes a command. Why is Jesus shown to have forbidden his hearers to go to the public synagogues? Surely every praying man was not a hypocrite and a liar, nor a Pharisee who loved to be seen praying by people. He had a motive, we must suppose. The same motive which prompts the experienced occultist to prevent his pupils from going into crowded places now as then, from entering churches, seance rooms, etc., unless they are in sympathy with the crowd. There is one piece of advice to be given to beginners, who cannot help going into crowds, one which may appear superstitious, but which in the absence of occult knowledge will be found efficacious. As well known to good astrologers, the days of the week are not in the order of those planets whose names they bear. The fact is that the ancient Hindus and Egyptians divided the day into four parts, each day being under the protection, as ascertained by practical magic, of a planet, and every day, as correctly asserted by Dion Cassius, received the name of the planet which ruled and protected the first portion. Let the student protect himself from the powers of the air, elementals, which throng public places by wearing either a ring containing some jewel of the color of the presiding planet, or else of the metal sacred to it. But the best protection is a clear conscience and a firm desire to benefit humanity. The planets, the days of the week, and their corresponding colors and metals. Transcriber's note. This table was a wide pull-out insert into the book, with more columns than modern readers can display. It has been reformatted into several tables of more manageable width. These correspondences are from the objective terrestrial plane. Atman is no number and corresponds to no visible planet, for it proceeds from the spiritual sun, nor does it bear any relation either to sound, color, or the rest, for it includes them all. As the human principles have no numbers per se, but only correspond to numbers, sounds, colors, etc., they are not enumerated here in the order used for exoteric purposes. 
There are three columns, numbers, metals, and planets. I will read each item first in the number column, then the metals, and then the planets. 1 in 10, Physical Man's Keynote. Iron. Mars, the planet of generation. 2. Life, spiritual and life, physical. Gold. The sun, the giver of life physically, spiritually, and esoterically, the substitute for the intermercurial planet, a sacred and secret planet with the ancients. 3. Because booty, so to speak, between Atma and Manas, and forms with the seventh of the auric envelope, the Devachanic triad. Mercury mixes with sulfur as booty is mixed with the flame of spirit. See alchemical definitions. Mercury, the messenger and the interpreter of the gods. Four, the middle principle between the purely material and the purely spiritual triads, the conscious part of animal man. Lead, Saturn. Five, tin, Jupiter. Six, copper, when alloyed becomes bronze, the dual principle. Venus, the morning and the evening star. Seven, contains in itself the reflection of the septenary man. Silver, the moon, the patent of the earth. The next chart has three columns, numbers, the human principles, and days of the week. I will read one item from numbers, then that same item from the human principles, and that same item from days of the week. One in ten, Kamarupa, the vehicle or seat of the animal instincts and passions. Tuesday, dies Marti or Tiw. Two, Prana or Yiva, life. Sunday, De Souls or Sun. Three, Bodhi. Spiritual, soul, or atma ray, vehicle of atma. Wednesday, dies Mercury, or wooden, day of Buddha in the south, end of wooden in the north, gods of wisdom. Four, kama manas, the lower mind, or animal soul. Saturday, dies Saturn's, or Saturn. Five, auric envelope. Thursday, dies Jovis, or Thor. 6. Manas, the higher mind or human soul. Friday, dies Venerus or Frigga. 7. Linga, Sharia, the astral double of man, the parent of the physical man. The next chart has numbers, colors, and sound, a musical scale. 1 and 10, red, sa or du. 2. Orange, re or re. 3. Yellow, Ga or Mi. Four, Green. Ma or Fa. Five, Blue. Pa or Sol. Six, Indigo or Dark Blue. Da or La. Seven, Violet. Ni or Si. In the accompanying diagram, the days of the week do not stand in their usual order, though they are placed in their correct sequence as determined by the order of the colors in the solar spectrum and the corresponding colors of the ruling planets. The fault of the confusion in the order of the days revealed by the comparison lies at the door of the early Christians. Adopting from the Jews their lunar months, they tried to blend them with the solar planets, and so made a mess of it. For the order of the days of the week as it now stands does not follow the order of the planets. Now the ancients arranged the planets in the following order. Moon, Mercury, Venus, Sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. 
counting the sun as a planet for exoteric purposes. Again, the Egyptians and Indians, the two oldest nations, divided their day into four parts, each of which was under the protection and rule of a planet. In the course of time, each day came to be called by the name of that planet, which ruled in its first portion, the morning. Now when they arranged their week, the Christians proceeded as follows. They wanted to make the day of the sun, or Sunday, the seventh, so they named the days of the week by taking every fourth planet in turn. Example, beginning with the moon, Monday, they counted thus moon, Mercury, Venus, sun, Mars, Thurs, Tuesday, the day whose first portion was ruled by Mars, became the second day of the week, and so on. It should be remembered also that the moon, like the sun, is a substitute for a secret planet. The present division of the solar year was made several centuries later than the beginning of our era, and our week is not that of the ancients and the occultists. The septenary division of the four parts of the lunar phases is as old as the world, and originated with the people who reckoned time by the lunar months. The Hebrews never used it, for they counted only the seventh day, the Sabbath, though the second chapter of Genesis seems to speak of it. Till the days of the Caesars there is no trace of a week of seven days among any nation save the Hindus. From India it passed to the Arabs, and reached Europe with Christianity. The Roman week consisted of eight days, and the Athenian of ten. Thus one of the numberless contradictions and fallacies of Christendom is the adoption of the Indian septenary week of the lunar reckoning, and the preservation at the same time of the mythological names of the planets. Nor do modern astrologers give the correspondences of the days and planets and their colors correctly. And while occultists can give good reason for every detail of their own tables of colors, etc., it is doubtful whether the astrologers can do the same. To close this first paper, let me say that the readers must in all necessity be separated into two broad divisions. Those who have not quite rid themselves of the usual skeptical doubts but who long to ascertain how much truth there may be in the claims of the occultists, and those others who, having freed themselves from the trammels of materialism and relativity, feel that true and real bliss must be sought only in the knowledge and personal experience of that which the Hindu philosopher calls the Brahmavidya, and the Buddhist Arhat the realization of Adibuddha, the primeval wisdom. Let the former pick out and study from those prayers only the explanations of the phenomena of life which profane science is unable to give him. Even with such limitations, they will find by the end of a year or two that they will have learned more than all their universities and colleges can teach them. As to the sincere believers, they will be rewarded by seeing their faith transformed into knowledge. True knowledge is of spirit and in spirit alone, and cannot be acquired in any other way except through the region of the higher mind the only plane from which we can penetrate the depths of the all-pervading absoluteness. He who carries out only those laws established by human minds, who lives that life which is prescribed by the code of morals and their fallible legislation, chooses as his guiding star a beacon that shines on the ocean of Maya, or of temporary delusions, and lasts for but one incarnation. These laws are necessary for the life and welfare of physical man alone. He has chosen a pilot who directs him through the shoals of one existence, a master who parts with him, however, on the threshold of death. How much happier that man who, while strictly performing on the temporary objective plane the duties of daily life, carrying out each and every law of his country, 
and rendering, in short, to Caesar what is Caesar's, leads in reality a spiritual and permanent existence, a life with no breaks of continuity, no gaps, no interludes, not even during those periods which are the halting places of the long pilgrimage of purely spiritual life. All the phenomena of the lower human mind disappear like the curtain of a proscenium, allowing him to live in the region beyond it, the plane of the noumenal, the one reality. If man, by suppressing, if not destroying, his selfishness and personality, only succeeds in knowing himself as he is behind the veil of physical maya, he will soon stand beyond all pain, all misery, and beyond all the wear and tear of change, which is the chief originator of pain. Such a man will be physically of matter. He will be surrounded by matter, and yet he will live beyond and outside it. His body will be subject to change, but he himself will be entirely without it, and will experience everlasting life even while in temporary bodies of short duration. All this may be achieved by the development of unselfish universal love of humanity, and the suppression of personality or selfishness, which is the cause of all sin, and consequently of all human sorrow. Paper 2. An Explanation in view of the abstruse nature of all the subjects dealt with, the present paper will begin with an explanation of some points which remained obscure in the preceding one, as well as some statements in which there was an appearance of contradiction. Astrologers, of whom there are many among the esotericists, are likely to be puzzled by some statements distinctly contradicting their teachings, whilst those who know nothing of the subject may perhaps find themselves opposed at the outset by those who have studied the exoteric systems of the Kabbalah and astrology. For let it be distinctly known, nothing of that which is printed broadcast, and available to every student in public libraries or museums, is really esoteric, but is either mixed with deliberate blinds, or cannot be understood and studied with profit without a complete glossary of occult terms. The following teachings and explanations, therefore, may be useful to the student in assisting him to formulate the teaching given in the preceding paper. In diagram 1, it will be observed that 3, 7, and 10 centers are respectively as follows. A. The three pertain to the spiritual world of the Absolute, and therefore to the three higher principles in man. B. The seven belong to the spiritual, psychic, and physical worlds, and to the body of man. Physics, metaphysics, and hyperphysics are the triad that symbolizes man on this plane. C. The ten or the sum total of these, is the universe as a whole, in all its aspects, and also its microcosm, man, with his ten orifices. Laying aside for the moment the higher decad, cosmos, and the lower decad, man, the first three numbers of the separate sevens have a direct reference to the spirit, soul, and auric envelope of the human being, as well as to the higher supersensual world. The lower four, or the four aspects, belong to man also, as well as to the universal cosmos the whole being synthesized by the Absolute. If these three discrete or distributive degrees of being be conceived, according to the symbology of all the Eastern religions, as contained in one ovum, or egg, the name of that egg will be Svabhavat, or the all-being on the manifested plane. This universe has, in truth, neither center nor periphery, but in the individual and finite mind of man it has such a definition the natural consequence of the limitations of human thought. In diagram 2, as already stated therein, no notice need be taken of the numbers used in the left-hand column, as these refer only to the hierarchies of the colors and sounds on the metaphysical plane, 
and are not the characteristic numbers of the human principles or the planets. The human principles elude enumeration, because each man differs from every other, just as no two blades of grass on the whole earth are absolutely alike. Numbering is here a question of spiritual progress and the natural predominance of one principle over another. With one man it may be booty that stands as number one. With another, if he be a bestial sensualist, the lower manas. With one, the physical body, or perhaps prana, the life principle, will be on the first and the highest plane. As would be the case in an extremely healthy man, full of vitality. With another, it may come as the sixth, or even the seventh, downward. Again, the colors and metals corresponding to the planets and human principles, as will be observed, are not those known exoterically to modern astrologers and western occultists. Let us see whence the modern astrologer got his notions about the correspondence of planets, metals, and colors. And here we are reminded of the modern Orientalist, who, judging by appearances, credits the ancient Akkadians, and also the Chaldeans, Hindus, and Egyptians, with the crude notion that the universe, and in like manner the earth, was like an inverted bell-shaped bowl. This he demonstrates by pointing to the symbolical representations of some Akkadian descriptions and to the Assyrian carvings. It is, however, no place here to explain how mistaken is the Assyriologist, for all such representations are simply symbolical of the Kargakura, the world mountain, or Meru, and relate only to the North Pole, the land of the gods. Now, the Assyrians arrange their exoteric teaching about the planets and their correspondences as follows. The following table has five columns, numbers, planets, metals, colors, and solar days of the week. I will read each item from one column to the next. 1. Saturn, lead, black, Saturday, whence Sabbath in honor of our Jehovah. 2. Jupiter, tin, white, but as often purple or orange, Thursday. 3. Mars, iron, red, Tuesday. 4. Sun, gold, yellow, golden, Sunday. 5. Venus, copper, green or yellow, Friday. 6. Mercury, quicksilver, blue, Wednesday. 7. Moon, silver, silver white, Monday. This is the arrangement now adopted by Christian astrologers, with the exception of the order of the days of the week, of which, by associating the solar planetary names with the lunar weeks, they have made a sore mess. As has been already shown in paper 1, This is the Ptolemaic geocentric system, which represents the universe as in the following diagram, shown our Earth in the center of the universe, and the Sun, a planet, the fourth in number. And if the Christian chronology and order of the days of the week are being denounced as being based on an entirely wrong astronomical foundation, it is high time to begin a reform also in astrology built on such lines. And coming to us entirely from the Chaldean and Assyrian exoteric mob, But the correspondences given in these papers are purely esoteric. For this reason, it follows that when the planets of the solar system are named or symbolized, as in diagram 2, it must not be supposed that the planetary bodies themselves are referred to, except as types on a purely physical plane of the septenary nature of the psychic and spiritual worlds. A material planet can correspond only to a material something. Thus, when Mercury is said to correspond to the right eye, It does not mean that the objective planet has any influence on the right optic organ, but that both stand rather as corresponding mystically through booty. Man derives his spiritual soul, booty, 
from the essence of the Manasaputra, the sons of wisdom, who are the divine beings, or angels, ruling and presiding over the planet Mercury. In the same way, Venus, Manas, and the left eye are set down as correspondences. Exoterically, there is, in reality, no such association of physical eyes and physical planets, but esoterically there is, for the right eye is the eye of wisdom, i.e., it corresponds magnetically with that occult center in the brain which we call the third eye, while the left corresponds with the intellectual brain, or those cells which are the organ on the physical plane of the thinking faculty. The Kabbalistic triangle of Kether, Chokma, and Bina shows this. Chokma and Bina are wisdom and intelligence, the mother and father, or again, the father and son are on the same plane and react mutually on one another. When the individual consciousness is turned inward, a conjunction of manas and buddhi takes place. In the spiritually regenerated man, this conjunction is permanent, the higher manas clinging to the buddhi beyond the threshold of devachan, and the soul, or rather the spirit, which should not be confounded with atma, the super-spirit, is then said to have the single eye. Esoterically, in other words, the third eye is active. Now Mercury is called Hermes and Venus Aphrodite, and thus their conjunction in man on the psychophysical plane gives him the name of the hermaphrodite or androgyne. The absolutely spiritual man is, however, entirely disconnected from sex. The spiritual man corresponds directly with the higher colored circles, the divine prism which emanates from the one infinite white circle, while physical man emanates from the sephiroth, which are the voices or sounds of Eastern philosophy. And these voices are lower than the colors, for they are the seven lower sephiroth, or the objective sounds, seen, not heard, as the Zohar shows. And even the Old Testament also, for when properly translated, verse 18 of chapter 20, Exodus, would read, And the people saw the voices, or sounds, not the thunderings, as now translated, and these voices, or sounds, are the sephiroth. In the same way, the right and left nostrils, into which is breathed the breath of lives, are here said to correspond with sun and moon, as Brahma, Prajapati, and Vak, or Osiris, and Isis, are the parents of the natural life. This quaternary, viz. the two eyes and the two nostrils, Mercury and Venus, sun and moon, con constitutes the Kabbalistic guardian angels of the four corners of the earth. It is the same in the Eastern esoteric philosophy, which, however, adds that the sun is not a planet, but the central star of our solar system and the moon a dead planet, from which all the principles are gone, both being substitutes, the one for an invisible intermercurial planet, and the other for a planet which seems to have now altogether disappeared from view. These are the four Maharajas, the four holy ones, connected with karma and humanity, cosmos and man, in all their aspects. They are the sun, or its substitute Michael, moon, or substitute Gabriel, Mercury, Raphael, and Venus, Uriel. It need hardly be said here again that the planetary bodies themselves, being only physical symbols, are not often referred to in the esoteric system, but as a rule their cosmic, psychic, physical, and spiritual forces are symbolized under these names. In short, it is the seven physical planets which are the lower Sephiroth of the Kabbalah, and our triple physical sun whose reflection only we see which is symbolized, or rather personified, by the upper triad, or sephirothal crown. Then again, it will be well to point out that the numbers attached to the psychic principles in diagram 1 appear the reverse of those in exoteric writings. This is because numbers in this connection are purely arbitrary, changing with every school. 
Some schools count three, some four, some six, and others seven, as do all the Buddhist esotericists. As said before, the esoteric school has been divided into two departments since the 14th century. One for the inner Lanus, or higher chelas, the other for the outer circle, or lay chelas. Mr. Sinnott was distinctly told in the letters he received from one of the gurus that he could not be taught the real esoteric doctrine, given out only to the pledged disciples of the inner circle. The numbers and principles do not go in regular sequence, like the skins of an onion, but the student must work out for himself the number appropriate to each of his principles when the time comes for him to enter upon practical study. The above will suggest to the student the necessity of knowing the principles by their names and their appropriate faculties apart from any system of enumeration, or by association with their corresponding centers of actions, colors, sounds, etc., until these become inseparable. The old and familiar mode of reckoning the principles, given in the Theosophist and Esoteric Buddhism, leads to another apparently perplexing contradiction, though it is really none at all. The principles numbered three and two, viz. Linga Sharia and Prana or Yiva, stand in the reverse order to that given in Diagram 1. A moment's consideration will suffice to explain the apparent discrepancy between the exoteric enumeration and the esoteric order given in Diagram 1. For in Diagram 1, the Linga Sharia is defined as the vehicle of Prana or Yiva, the life principle, and as such must of necessity be inferior to Prana not superior as the exoteric enumeration would suggest. The principles do not stand one above the other, and thus cannot be taken in numerical sequence. Their order depends upon the superiority and predominance of one or another principle, and therefore differs in every man. The Linga Sharia is the double or protoplasmic antitype of the body, which is its image. It is in this sense that it is called in Diagram 2, the parent of the physical body, i.e. the mother by conception of prana, the father. This idea is conveyed in the Egyptian mythology by the birth of Horus, the child of Osiris and Isis. Although, like all sacred mythoi, this is both a threefold spiritual and a sevenfold psychophysical application. To close the subject, prana, the life principle, can, in sober truth, have no number, as it pervades every other principle, or the human total. Each number of the seven would thus be naturally applicable to prana yiva exoterically, as it is to the auric body esoterically. As Pythagoras showed, cosmos was produced not through or by number, but geometrically, i.e. following the proportions of numbers. To those who are unacquainted with the exoteric astrological nature as ascribed in practice to the planetary bodies, it may be useful if we set them down here after the manner of diagram 2 in relation to their dominion over the human body, colors, metals, etc., and explain at the same time why genuine esoteric philosophy differs from the astrological claims. This diagram has five columns, planet, days, metals, parts of the body, and colors. I will read each item through each of the different columns. Saturn, Saturday, lead, Right ear, knees, and bony system, black. Jupiter, Thursday, tin, left ear, thighs, feet, and arterial system, purple. Mars, Tuesday, iron, forehead, and nose, the skull, sex function, and muscular system, red. Sun, Sunday, gold, right eye, heart, and vital centers, orange. 
Venus, Friday, copper, chin and cheeks, neck and reins, and the Venus system, yellow. Mercury, Wednesday, quicksilver, mouth, hands, abdomen, visceral, and nervous system, dove or cream. Moon, Monday, silver, breasts, left eye, the fluidic system, saliva, lymph, etc. White. Thus it will be seen that the influence of the solar system and the exoteric Kabbalistic astrology is by this message distributed over the entire human body, the primary metals, and the gradations of color from black to white. But that esotericism recognizes neither black nor white as colors, because it holds religiously to the seven solar or natural colors of the prism. Black and white are artificial tints. They belong to the earth, and are only perceived by virtue of the special construction of our physical organs. White is the absence of all colors, and therefore no color. Black is simply the absence of light, and therefore the negative aspect of white. The seven prismatic colors are direct emanations from the seven hierarchies of being, each of which has a direct bearing upon the relation to one of the human principles. Since each of these hierarchies is, in fact, the creator and source of the corresponding human principle, each prismatic color is called in occultism the father of the sound, which corresponds to it. Sound being the word or the logos of its father thought, this is the reason why sensitives connect every color with a definite sound, a fact well recognized in modern science. Example, Francis Galton's human faculty. But black and white are entirely negative colors and have no representatives in the world of subjective being. Kabbalistic astrology says that the dominion of planetary bodies in the human brain also is defined thus. There are seven primary groups of faculties, six of which function through the cerebrum, and the seventh through the cerebellum. This is perfectly correct esoterically, but when it is further said that Saturn governs the devotional faculties, Mercury the intellectual, Jupiter the sympathetic, the Sun the governing faculties, Mars the selfish, Venus the tenacious, and the Moon the instincts, we say that that explanation is incomplete and even misleading. For in the first place, the physical planets can rule only the physical body and the purely physical functions. All the mental, emotional, psychic, and spiritual faculties are influenced by the occult properties of the scale of causes which emanate from the hierarchies of the spiritual rulers of the planets, and not by the planets themselves. This scale, as given in diagram 2, leads the student to perceive in the following order. 1. Color. 2. Sound. 3. The sound materializes into the spirit of the metals, i.e. the metallic elements. 4. These materialize again into the physical metals. 5. Then the harmonial and vibratory radiant essence passes into the plants, giving them color and smell, both of which properties depend upon the rate of vibration of this energy per unit of time. 6. From plants it passes into the animals. 7. And finally culminates in the principles of man. Thus we see that the divine essence of our progenitor is in heaven, encircling through the seven stages, spirit becoming matter, and matter returning to spirit. As there is sound in nature which is inaudible, so there is color which is invisible, but which can be heard. The creative force at work in its incessant task of transformation produces color, sound, and numbers in the shapes of rates of vibration which compound and disassociate the atoms and molecules. Though invisible and inaudible to us in detail, yet the synthesis of the whole becomes audible to us on the material plane. It is that which the Chinese call the great tone or kung 
It is, even by scientific confession, the actual tonic of nature, held by musicians to be the middle fa on the keyboard of a piano. We hear it distinctly in the voice of nature, in the roaring of the ocean, in the sound of the foliage of the great forest, in the distant roar of a great city, in the wind, the tempest, and the storm, in short, in everything in nature which has a voice or produces sound. To the hearing of all who hearken, it culminates in a single definite tone, of an unappreciable pitch, which, as said, is the F or Fa of the diatonic scale. From these particulars, that wherein lies the difference between the exoteric and the esoteric nomenclature and symbolism will be evident to the student of occultism. In short, Kabbalistic astrology, as practiced in Europe, is the semi-esoteric secret science, adapted for the outer and not for the inner circle. It is furthermore often left incomplete and not infrequently distorted to conceal the real truth. While it symbolizes and adapts its correspondences on the mere appearance of things, Esoteric philosophy, which concerns itself preeminently with the essence of things, accepts only such symbols as cover the whole ground, i.e., such symbols as yield a spiritual as well as a psychic and physical meaning. Yet even Western astrology has done excellent work, for it has helped to carry the knowledge of the existence of a secret wisdom throughout the dangers of the medieval ages, and their dark bigotry up to the present day, when all the danger has disappeared. The order of the planets in exoteric practices is that defined by the geocentric radii, or the distance of their several orbits from the Earth as a center, viz. Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Sun, Venus, Mercury, and Moon. In the first three of these we find symbolized the celestial triad of supreme power in the physical, manifested universe, or Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. While in the last four we recognize the symbols of the terrestrial quaternary ruling over all natural and physical revolutions of the seasons, quarters of the day, points of the compass, and elements, thus spring, summer, autumn, winter, morning, noon, evening, night, youth, adolescence, manhood, age, fire, air, water, earth, east, south, west, north. But esoteric science is not content with analogies on the purely objective plane of the physical senses. And therefore it is absolutely necessary to preface further teachings in this direction with a clear explanation of the real meaning of the word magic. What magic is, in reality? Esoteric science is, above all, the knowledge of our relations with and in divine magic, inseparableness from our divine selves, the latter meaning something else besides our own higher spirit. Thus, before proceeding to exemplify and explain these relations, it may perhaps be useful to give the student a correct idea of the full meaning of this most misunderstood word, magic. Many are those willing and eager to study occultism, but very few have even an approximate idea of the science itself. Now, very few of our American and European students can derive benefit from Sanskrit works or even their translations, as these translations are, for the most part, merely blinds to the uninitiated. I therefore propose to offer to their attention demonstrations of the aforesaid drawn from Neoplatonic works. These are accessible in translation, and in order to throw light on that which has hitherto been full of darkness, it will suffice to point to a certain key in them. Thus the Gnosis, both pre-Christian and post-Christian, will serve our purpose admirably. There are millions of Christians who know the name of Simon Magus, and the little that is told about him in the Acts. 
but very few have ever heard of the many motley, fantastic, and contradictory details which tradition records about his life. The story of his claims and his death is to be found only in the prejudiced, half-fantastic records about him in the works of the Church Fathers, such as Arrhenius, Epiphanius, and St. Justin, and especially in the anonymous Philosophamuna. Yet he is a historical character, and the appellation of Magus was given to him and was accepted by all his contemporaries, including the heads of the Christian Church, as a qualification indicating the miraculous powers he possessed and irrespective of whether he was regarded as a white, divine, or a black, infernal magician. In this respect, opinion has always been made subservient to the Gentile or Christian proclivities of his chronicler. It is in his system and in that of Menander, his pupil and successor, that we find what the term magic meant for initiates in those days. Simon, as all the other Gnostics, taught that our world was created by the lower angels, whom he calls aeons. He mentions only three degrees of such, because it was and is useless, as we have before explained, to teach anything about the four higher ones, and he therefore begins at the plane of the globes, A and G. His system is as near to occult truth as any, so that we may examine it, as well as his own and Menander's claims about magic, to find out what they meant by the term. Now for Simon, the summit of all manifested creation was fire. It was with him, as with us, the universal principle, the infinite potency, born from the concealed potentiality. This fire was the primeval cause of the manifested world of being, and was dual, having a manifested and a concealed or secret side. The secret side of the fire is concealed in its evident, or objective, side, and the objective is produced from the secret side. He writes, which amounts to to saying that the visible is ever-present in the invisible, and the invisible in the visible. This was but a new form of stating Plato's idea of the intelligible, notion, and the sensible, eishtiton, and Aristotle's teaching of the potency, dunamis, and the act, energia. For Simon, all that can be thought of, all that can be acted upon, was perfect intelligence. Fire contained all, and thus all the parts of that fire, being endowed with intelligence and reason, were susceptible of development by extension and emanation. This is our teaching of the manifested Logos, and these parts in their primordial emanation are the Gianni Chohans, the sons of flame and fire, or higher aeons. This fire is the symbol of an active and living side of our divine nature. Behind it it lay infinite potentiality and potentiality, which Simon named that which has stood, stands, and will stand or permanent stability and personified immutability. From the potency of thought, divine ideation thus passed to action. Hence the series of primordial emanations through thought begetting the act, the objective side of fire being the mother, the sacred side of it being the father. Simon called these emanations sigises, a united pair or couple, for they emanated two by two, one as an active and the other as a passive aeon. Three couples thus emanated, or six in all, the fire being the seventh, to which Simon gave the following names, mind and thought, voice and name, reason and reflection, the first in each pair being male, the last female. From these primordial six emanated the six aeons of the middle world. Let us see what Simon himself says. Each of these six primitive beings contained the entire infinite potency of its parent, but it was there only in potency and not in act. That potency had to be called forth, 
or confirmed through an image in order that it manifest in all its essence, virtue, grandeur, and effects. For only then could the emanated potency become similar to its parent, the eternal and infinite potency. If, on the contrary, it remained simply potentially in the six potencies and failed to be conformed through an image, then the potency would not pass into action, but would get lost. In clearer terms, it would become atrophied, as the modern expression goes. Now, what do these words mean if not that to be equal in all things, to the infinite potency, the aeons had to imitate it in its action and become themselves, in their turn, emanative principles, as was their parent, giving life to new beings and becoming potencies in act to themselves. To produce emanations or to have acquired the gift of Kriya Shakti is the direct result of that power, an effect which depends on our own action. That power, then, is inherent in man, as it is in the primordial aeons and even in the secondary emanations, by the very fact of their and our descent from the one primordial principle, the infinite power or potency. Thus we find in the system of Simon Magus that the six aeons, synthesized by the seventh, the parent potency, passed into act, and emanated in their turn six secondary aeons, which were each synthesized by the respective parents. In the Philosophumna, we read that Simon compared the aeons to the tree of life, said Simon in the Revelation. It is written that there are two ramifications of the universal aeons, having neither beginning nor end, issued both from the same root, the invisible and the incomprehensible potentiality, sig, silence. One of these, series of aeons, appears from above. This is the great potency, universal mind, or divine ideation, the mahat of the Hindus. It orders all things that is male. The other is from below, for it is the great, manifested thought, the female aeon, generating all things. These two kinds of aeons, corresponding with each other, have conjunction and manifest the middle distance, the intermediate sphere or plane, the incomprehensible air which has neither beginning nor end. This female air is our ether, or the Kabbalistic astral light. It is, then, the second world of Simon, born of fire, the principle of everything. We call it the one life, the intelligent, divine flame, omnipresent and infinite. In Simon's system, the second world was ruled by a being, or potency, both female and male, or active and passive, good and bad. This parent being, like the primordial infinite potency, is also called that which has stood, stands and will stand, so long as the manifested cosmos shall last. When it emanated in Act II and became like unto its own parent, it was not dual or androgyne. It is the thought, Sigi, that emanated from it which became as itself, the parent, having become like unto its image or antitype. The second had now become in its turn the first, on its own plane or sphere. As Simon has it, it, the parent or father, was one, for having it, the thought, in itself it was alone. It was not, however, first though it was pre-existing, but manifesting itself to itself from itself. It became the second, or dual. Nor was it called father before it, the thought, gave it that name. As therefore itself developing itself by itself, manifested to itself its own thought. So also the thought being manifested did not act, but seeing the father hid in itself, that is, hid, that potency, in itself. And that potency, dunami, the news, and thought, Epinoia are male-female, whence they correspond with one another, for potency in no way differs from thought, being one. 
So from the things above is found potency, and from those below, thought. It comes to pass, therefore, that that which is manifested from them, although being one, yet is found to be twofold, the androgyne having the female in itself. So is mind and thought, things inseparable from each other, which thought being one, are yet found dual. He, Simon, calls the first syzygy of the six potencies and of the seventh, which is with it, nous and epinoia, heaven and earth. The male looks down from on high and takes thought for his syzygy, or spouse. For the earth below receives those intellectual fruits, which are brought down from heaven and are cognate to the earth. Simon's third world, with its third series of six aeons, and the seventh, the parent, is emanated in the same way. That is this same note which runs through every Gnostic system, gradual development downward into matter by similitude. And it is a law which is to be traced down to the primordial occultism, or magic. With the Gnostics, as with us, this seventh potency, synthesizing all, is the spirit brooding over the dark waters of the undifferentiated space, Narayana, or Vishnu in India, the Holy Ghost in Christianity. But while in the latter the conception is conditioned and dwarfed by limitations necessitating faith and grace, Eastern philosophy shows it pervading every atom, conscious or unconscious. Arrhenius supplements the information on the further development of these six aeons. We learn from him that thought, having separated itself from its parent, and knowing through its identity of essence with the latter what it had to know, proceeded on the second or intermediate plane, or rather world, each of such worlds consisting of two planes, the superior and inferior, male and female, the latter assuming finally both potencies and becoming androgyne, to create inferior hierarchies, angels and powers, dominions and hosts of every description, which in their turn created or rather emanated out of their own essence, our world with its men and beings over which they watch. It thus follows that every rational being called man on earth is of the same essence and possesses potentiality of the attributes of the higher aeons, the primordial seven. It is for him to develop, with the image before him of the highest, by imitation in act two, the potency with which the highest of his parents or fathers is endowed. Here we may again quote with the advantage from the Philosophumina. So then, according to Simon, this blissful and imperishable principle is concealed in everything in potency, not in act. This is that which is stood above in ingenerable potency, that which stands below in the stream of the waters generated in an image, that which will stand above beside the blissful infinite potency, if it makes itself like unto this image. For three, he says, are they that stand, and without these three aeons of stability, there is no adornment of the generable which, according to them, the Simonians, is born on the water, and being molded according to the similitude is a perfect and celestial aeon, in no manner of thinking inferior to the ingenerable potency. Thus they say, I and thou are one, before me, wast thou, that which is after thee, is I. This, he says, is one potency, divided into above and below, generating itself, nourishing itself, seeking itself, finding itself its own mother, father, brother, spouse, daughter, and son, one, for it is the root of all. Thus of this triple aeon we learn the first exits as that which has stood, stands, and will stand, or the uncreated power, Atman. The second is generated in the dark waters of space, chaos, or undifferentiated substance, or booty, from or through the image of the former reflected in those waters, the image of him or it which moves on them, the third world, 
or in man, manas, will be endowed with every power of that eternal and omnipresent image, if it but assimilates it to itself. For all that is eternal, pure, and incorruptible is concealed in everything that is. If only potentially, not actually, and everything is that image, provided the lower image, man, ascends to that highest source and root in spirit and thought. Matter as substance is eternal and has never been created. Therefore, Simon Magus, with all the great Gnostic teachers and Eastern philosophers, never speaks of its beginning. Eternal matter receives its various forms in the lower aeon from the creative angels, or builders as we call them. Why then should not man, the direct heir of the highest aeon, do the same? By the potency of his thought, which is born from spirit. This is Kriya Shakti, the power of producing forms of the objective plane through the potency of ideation and will, from invisible, indestructible matter. Truly says Jeremiah, quoting the word of the Lord, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. For Jeremiah stands here for man when he was yet an aeon, or divine man, both with Simon Magus and Eastern philosophy. The first three chapters of Genesis are as occult as that which is given in paper one. For the terrestrial paradise in the womb, says Simon, Eden, the region surrounding it. The river which went out of Eden to water the garden is the umbilical cord. This cord is divided into four heads, the streams that flowed out of it, the four canals which serve to carry nutrition to the fetus, i.e. the two arteries and the two veins which are the channels for the blood and convey the breathing air, the unborn child, according to Simon, being entirely enveloped by the amnion, fed through the umbilical cord and given vital air through the aorta. The above is given for the elucidation of that which is to follow. The disciples of Simon Magus were numerous and were instructed by him in magic. They made use of the so-called exorcisms, as in the New Testament, incantations, filters, believed in dreams and visions, and produced them at will, and finally forced the lower orders of spirits to obey them. Simon Magus was called the great power of God, literally the potency of the deity, which is called great. That which was then termed magic we now call theosophia, or divine wisdom, power, and knowledge. His direct disciple, Menander, was also a great magician. Caesarinus, among other writers, the successor of Simon was Menander, a Samaritan by birth, who reached the highest summits in the science of magic. Thus, both master and pupil are shown as having attained the highest powers in the art of enchantments, powers which can be attained only through the help of the devil, as Christians claim. And yet their works were identical with those spoken of in the New Testament, wherein such phenomenal results are called divine miracles and are therefore believed in and accepted as coming from and through God. But the question is, have these so-called miracles of the Christ and the apostles ever been explained any more than the magical achievements of the so-called sorcerers and magicians? I say never. We occultists do not believe in supernatural phenomena, and the masters laugh at the word miracle. Let us see then what is really the sense of the word magic. The source and basis of it lie in spirit and thought whether on the purely divine or the terrestrial plane. Those who know the history of Simon have the two versions before them, that of white and of black magic, at their option in the much-talked-of union of Simon and Helena, whom he called his Ipinoa thought. Those who, like the Christians, had to discredit a dangerous rival, talk of Helena as being a beautiful and actual woman, whom Simon had met in a house of ill fame at Tyre. 
and who was, according to those who wrote his life, the reincarnation of Helen of Troy. How then was she divine thought? The lower angels, Simon is made to say in Philosophumina, or the third aeons, being so material, had more badness in them than all the others. Poor man, created or emanated from them, had the vice of his origin. What was it? Only this. When the third aeons possessed themselves, in their turn, of the divine thought, through the transmission into them of fire, instead of making a man into complete being, according to the universal plan, they at first detained from him that divine spark, thought on earth's manas, and that was the cause and origin of senseless man's committing the original sin, as the angels had committed it aeons before by refusing to create. Finally, after detaining Epinoia, prisoner amongst them, and having subjected the divine thought to every kind of insult and desecration, they ended by shutting it into the already defiled body of man. After this, as interpreted by the enemies of Simon, she passed from one female's body into another, through ages and races, until Simon found and recognized her in the form of Helena, the prostitute, the lost sheep of the parable. Simon is made to represent himself as the savior descended on earth to rescue this lamb and those men whom Epinoia is still under the dominion of the lower angels. The greatest magical feats are thus attributed to Simon through his sexual union with Helena, hence black magic. Indeed, the chief rites of this kind of magic are based on such disgusting literal interpretation of noble myths, one of the noblest of which was thus invented by Simon as a symbolical mark of his own teaching. Those who understood it correctly knew what it was meant by Helena. It was the marriage of Nous, Atma Budi, with Manas, the union through which will and thought become one and are endowed with divine powers. For Atman, in man, being of an unalloyed essence, the primordial divine fire, or the eternal and universal that which has stood, stands, and will stand, is of all the planes. The Budi is the vehicle or the thought, generated by and generating the Father in her turn, and also will. She is that which has stood, stands, and will stand, thus becoming in conjunction with manas, male, female, in this sphere only. Hence, when Simon spoke of himself as the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and of Helena as his epinoia, divine thought, he meant the marriage of his booty with manas. Helena was the shakti of the inner man, the female potency. Now what says Menander? The lower angels, he taught, were the emanations of Enoya, designing thought. It was Anoya who taught the science of magic and imparted it to him, together with the art of conquering the creative angels of the lower world. The latter stand for the passions of our lower nature. His pupils, after receiving baptism from him, i.e. after initiation, were said to resurrect from the dead, and growing no older become immortal. This resurrection promised by Menander meant, of course, simply the passage from the darkness of ignorance into the light of truth the awakening of man's immortal spirit to inner and eternal life. This is the science of the Raja Yogis, magic. Every person who has read Neoplatonic philosophy knows how its chief adepts, such as Plotinus, and especially Porphyry, fought against phenomenal theurgy. But beyond all of them, Iamblichus, the author of the De Mysterious, lifts high the veil from the real term theurgy and shows us therein the true divine science of Raja Yoga. Magic, he says, is a lofty and sublime science, divine and exalted above all others. It is the great remedy for all. It neither takes its source in, nor is it limited to, the body or its passions, to the human compound or its constitution. 
but all is derived by it from our upper gods. Our divine egos, which run like a silver thread from the spark in us up to the primeval divine fire. Yamblichus execrates physical phenomena produced, as he says, by the bad demons who deceive men, the spooks of the seance room, as vehemently as he exalts divine theurgy. But to exercise the latter, he teaches, the theurgist must imperatively be a man of high morality and a chaste soul. The other kind of magic is used only by impure, selfish men, and has nothing of the divine in it. No real vates would ever consent to find in its communications anything coming from our higher gods. Thus one, theurgy, is the knowledge of our father, the higher self, the other, subjection to our lower nature. One requires holiness of the soul, a holiness which rejects and excludes everything corporeal, the other, the desecration of it, the soul. One is the union with the gods, with one's god, the source of all good. The other, intercourse with demons, elementals, which, unless we subject them, will subject us, and lead us, step by step, to moral ruin, mediumship. In short, theurgy unites us most strongly to divine nature. This nature begets itself through itself, moves through its own powers, supports all, and is intelligent. Being the ornament of the universe, it invites us to intelligible truth to perfection and imparting perfection to others. It unites us so intimately to all the creative actions of the gods, according to the capacity of each of us, that the soul, having accomplished the sacred rites, it consolidated in there the gods, actions, and intelligences, until it launches itself into and is absorbed by the primordial divine essence. This is the object of the sacred initiations of the Egyptians. Now, Yamblichus shows us how this union of our higher soul with the universal soul, with the gods, is to be affected. He speaks of mantia, which is samadhi, the highest trance. He speaks also of dream, which is divine vision, when man re-becomes again a god. By theurgy or raja yoga, a man arrives at 1. Prophetic discernment through our god, the respective higher ego of each of us, revealing to us the truths of the plane on which we happen to be acting. 4. And domination over the minor, senseless demons, elementals, by the very nature of our purified egos. But this demands the complete purification of the latter, and this is called by him magic through initiation into theurgy. But theurgy has to be preceded by a training of our senses and the knowledge of the human self in relation to the divine self. So long as man has not thoroughly mastered this preliminary study, it is idle to anthropomorphize the formless. By formless, I mean the higher and the lower gods, the supermundane as well as the mundane spirits or beings, which to beginners can be revealed only in colors and sounds. For none but a high adept can perceive a god in its true transcendental form, which to the untrained intellect, to the chela, will be visible only by its aura. The visions of full figures, casually perceived by sensitives and mediums, belong to one or another of the only three categories they can see. A. Astrals of living men. B. Nurmankayas, adepts, good or bad, whose bodies are dead, but who have learned to live in the invisible space in their ethereal personalities. And C. Spooks, elementaries, and elementals masquerading in shapes borrowed from the astral light in general, or from figures in the mind's eye of the audience, or of the medium, which are immediately reflected in their respective auras. Having read the foregoing, students will now better comprehend the necessity of first studying the correspondences between our principles. 
which are but the various aspects of the triune, spiritual and physical man, and our paradigm, the direct roots of these in the universe. In view of this, we must resume our teaching about the hierarchies directly connected and forever linked with man. Enough has been said to show that while for the Orientalists and profane masses, the sentence Om Madni Padmi Hum means simply, O oh, the jewel in the lotus. Esoterically, it signifies, O oh, my God within me. Yes, there is a God in each human being. For man was and will re-become God. The sentence points to the indissoluble union between man and the universe. For the lotus is the universal symbol of cosmos, as the absolute totality, and the jewel is the spiritual man, or God. In the preceding paper, the correspondences between colors, sounds, and principles were given. And those who have read our second volume will remember that these seven principles are derived from the seven great hierarchies of angels, or dhyana chohans, which are in their turn associated with colors and sounds and form collectively the manifested logos. In the eternal music of the spheres, we find the perfect scale corresponding to the colors, and in the number determined by the vibrations of color and sound, which underlies every form and guides every sound, we find the summing up of the manifested universe. We may illustrate these correspondences by showing the relation of color and sound to the geometrical figures, which express the progressive stages in the manifestation of cosmos. But the student will certainly be liable to confusion if by studying the diagrams, he does not remember two things. One, that our plane, a plane of reflection, and therefore illusionary, the various notations are reversed and must be counted from below upwards. The musical scale begins from below upwards, commencing with the deep do and ending with the far more acute C. Two, that kama rupa, corresponding to do in the musical scale, containing as it does all potentialities of matter, is necessarily the starting point on our plane. Further, it commences the notation on every plane, as corresponding to the matter of that plane. Again, the student must also remember that these notes have to be arranged in a circle, thus showing how fa is in the middle note of nature. In short, musical notes, or sounds, colors, and numbers proceed from 1 to 7 and not from 7 to 1 as erroneously shown in the spectrum of the prismatic colors, in which red is counted first, a fact which necessitated my putting the principles in the days of the week at random in diagram 2. The musical scale and colors, according to the number of vibrations, proceed from the world of gross matter to that of spirits. Thus, this table has five columns, principles, colors, notes, numbers, and states of matter. I will read each item through each column. Chaya, shadow or double, violet, sea, seven, ether. Higher manas, spiritual intelligence, indigo, la, six, critical state called air in occultism. Auric envelope, blue, soul, five, steam or vapor. Lower manas or animal soul, Green, Fa, Four, Critical State. Buddhi, or Spiritual Soul, Yellow, Me, Three, Water. Prana, or Life Principle, Orange, Re, Two, Critical State. Kamarupa, the Seat of Animal Life. Red, Dew, One, Ice.
Here again, the student is asked to dismiss from his mind any correspondence between principles and numbers, for reasons already given. The esoteric enumeration cannot be made to correspond with the conventional exoteric. The one is the reality. The other is classified according to elusive appearances. The human principles, as given in esoteric Buddhism, were tabulated for beginners, so as not to confuse their minds. It was half a blind. Colors, sounds, and forms. To proceed. There is a circle with absolute and a dot in the middle of it, and a triangle or pyramid below with a dot in the middle of that. The point in the circle is the unmanifested logos, corresponding to absolute life and absolute sound. The first geometrical figure after the circle or the spheroid is the triangle. It corresponds to motion, color, and sound. Thus, the point of the triangle represents the second logos, father, mother, or the white ray which is of no color, since it contains potentially all colors. It is shown radiating from the unmanifested logos, or the unspoken word. Around the first triangle is formed on the plane of the primordial substance in this order, reversed as to our plane. A, A, the astral double of nature, or the paradigm of all forms. B, divine ideation or universal mind. C, the synthesis of occult nature, the egg of Brahma, containing all and radiating all. D, animal or material soul of nature, source of animal and vegetable intelligence and instinct. E, the aggregate of jhana chohanic intelligences, fohat. F, life principle in nature. G, the life procreating principle in nature, that which on the spiritual plane corresponds to sexual affinity on the lower. Mirrored on the plane of gross nature, the world of reality is reversed and becomes on earth and our plane. B, A, red is the color of manifested dual or male and female. In man it is shown in its lowest animal form. B. Orange is the color of the robes of the yogis and Buddhist priests, the color of the sun and spiritual vitality, also of the vital principle. C. Yellow or radiant golden is the color of the spiritual, divine ray in every atom, in man, a booty. D. Green and red are, so to speak, interchangeable colors, for green absorbs the red, as being threefold stronger in its vibrations than the latter. And green is the complementary color of extreme red. This is why the lower manas and kamarupa are respectively shown as green and red. E, the astral plane or auric envelope in nature and man. F, the mind or rational element in man and nature. G, the most ethereal counterpart of the body of man. The opposite pole, standing in point of vibration and sensitiveness as the violet stands to the red. The above is on the manifested plane after which we get the seven and the manifested prism, or man on earth. With the latter, the black magician alone is concerned. In cosmos, the gradations and correlations of colors and sounds, and therefore of numbers, are infinite. This is suspected even in physics, for it is ascertained that there exist slower vibrations than those of the red, the slowest perceptible to us, and far more rapid vibrations than those of the violet, the most rapid that our senses can perceive. But on earth, in our physical world, the range of perceptible vibrations is limited. Our physical senses cannot take cognizance of vibrations above and below the septenary and limited gradations of the prismatic colors. For such vibrations are incapable of causing in us the sensation of color or sound. 
It will always be the graduated septenary and no more, unless we learn to paralyze our quaternary and discern both the superior and inferior vibrations with our spiritual senses seated in the upper triangle. Now, on this plane of illusion, there are three fundamental colors, as demonstrated by physical science, red, blue, and yellow, or rather orange-yellow, expressed in terms of the human principles they are, one, Kamarupa, the seat of the animal sensations, welded to and serving as a vehicle for the animal soul or lower manas, red and green as said, being interchangeable, two, auric envelope, or the essence of man, and three, prana, or life principle. But if from the realm of illusion, or the living man as he is on our earth, subject to his sensuous perceptions only, we pass to that of semi-illusion, and observe the natural colors themselves, or those of the principles, that is, if we try to find out which are those that in the perfect man absorb all others, we shall find that the colors correspond and become complementary in the following way. Violet, one, red-green, two, orange-blue, three, yellow-indigo. Violet. A faint violet, mist-like form, represents the astral man within an oviform bluish circle, over which radiate in ceaseless vibrations the prismatic colors. That color is predominant, of which the corresponding principle is the most active generally, or at the particular moment when the clairvoyant perceives it. Such man appears during his waking states, and it is by the predominance of this or that color, and by the intensity of its vibrations, that a clairvoyant, if he be acquainted with correspondences, can judge of the inner state or character of a person, for the latter is an open book to every practical occultist. In the trance state, the aura changes entirely. The seven prismatic colors become no longer discernible. In sleep also, they are not all at home. For those which belong to the spiritual elements in the man, these yellow, booty, indigo, higher manas, and the blue of the auric envelope will be either hardly discernible or altogether missing. The spiritual man is free during sleep, and though his physical memory may not become aware of it lives robed in his highest essence, in realms on other planes, in realms which are the land of reality, called dreams on our plane of illusion. A good clairvoyant, moreover, if he had an opportunity of seeing a yogi in the trance state and a mesmerized subject side by side, would learn an important lesson in occultism. He would learn to know the difference between self-induced trance and a hypnotic state resulting from extraneous influence. In the yogi, the principles of the lower quaternary disappear entirely. Neither red, green, red-violet, nor the auric blue of the body are to be seen. Nothing but hardly perceptible vibrations of the golden-hued prana principle and the violet flame streaked with gold rushing upwards from the head, in the region where the third eye rests, and culminating in a point. If the student remembers that the true violet, or the extreme end of the spectrum, is no compound color of red and blue, but a homogeneous color with vibrations seven times more rapid than those of the red, and that the golden hue is the essence of the three yellow hues from the orange-red to yellow-orange and yellow. He will understand the reason why he lives in his own auric body, now become the vehicle of buddhimanas. On the other hand, in a subject in an artificially produced hypnotic or mesmeric trance, an effect of unconscious, when not of conscious black magic, unless produced by a high adept, the whole set of the principles will be present, 
with the higher manas paralyzed, Bodhi severed from it through that paralysis, and the red-violet astral body entirely subjected to the lower manas in Kama Rupa, the green and red animal monsters in us. One who comprehends well the above explanations will readily see how important it is for every student, whether he is striving for practical occult powers, or only for the purely psychic and spiritual gifts of clairvoyance and metaphysical knowledge, to master thoroughly the right correspondences between the human or nature principles and those of cosmos. It is ignorance which leads materialistic science to deny the inner man and his divine powers. Knowledge and his personal experience that allow the occultist to affirm that such powers are as natural to man as swimming to fishes. It is like a Laplander, in all sincerity, denying the possibility of the catgut, strung loosely on the sounding board of a violin, producing comprehensive sounds or melody. Our principles are the seven-stringed lyre of Apollo, truly. In this our age, when oblivion has shrouded ancient knowledge, Men's faculties are no better than the loose strings of the violin to the Laplander. But the occultist who knows how to tighten them and tune his violin in harmony with the vibrations of color and sound will extract divine harmony from them. The combination of these powers and the attuning of the microcosm and the macrocosm will give the geometrical equivalent of the invocation, Om Madi Padme Hum. This is why the previous knowledge of music and geometry was obligatory in the school of Pythagoras. The Roots of Color and Sound Further, each of the primordial seven, the first seven rays forming the manifested logos, is again sevenfold. Thus, as the seven colors of the solar spectrum correspond to the seven rays, or hierarchies, so each of these latter has again its seven divisions corresponding to the same series of colors. But in this case, one color, viz. that which characterizes the particular hierarchy as a whole, is predominant and more intense than the others. These hierarchies can only be symbolized as concentric circles of prismatic colors, each hierarchy being represented by a series of seven concentric circles, each circle representing one of the prismatic colors in their natural order. But in each of these wheels, one circle will be brighter and more vivid in color than the rest and the wheel will have a surrounding aura, a fringe, as the physicists call it, of that color. This color will be the characteristic color of that hierarchy as a whole. Each of these hierarchies furnishes the essence, the soul, and is the builder of one of the seven kingdoms of nature, which are the three elemental kingdoms, the mineral, the vegetable, the animal, and the kingdom of spiritual man. Moreover, each hierarchy furnishes the aura of one of the seven principles in man with its specific color. Further, as each of these hierarchies is the ruler of one of the sacred planets, it will easily be understood how astrology came into existence, and that real astrology has a strictly scientific basis. The symbol adopted for the Eastern school to represent the seven hierarchies of creative powers is a wheel of seven concentric circles, each circle being colored with one of the seven colors. Call them angels, if you will, or planetary spirits, or again, the seven rulers of the seven sacred planets of our system as in our present case. At all events, the concentric circles stand as symbols for Ezekiel's wheels, with some Western occultists and Kabbalists, and for the builders or Prajapati with us. Diagram 3. The student should carefully examine the following diagram. There are seven boxes, vertically, violet, indigo, blue, green, yellow, orange, and red. 
and is aligned to seven different colors from each box. And in between is the human principles. So violet lingasharia points to violet, indigo, blue, green, yellow, orange, red. Indigo, the higher manas, points to violet, indigo, blue, green, yellow, orange, red. Thus, the lingasharia is derived from the violet subray of the violet hierarchy. The higher manas is similarly derived from the indigo subray of the indigo hierarchy, and so on. Every man being born under a certain planet, there will always be a predominance of that planet's color in him, because that principle, wall, rule in him, which has its origin in the hierarchy in question. There will also be a certain amount of the color derived from the other planets present in his aura, but that of the ruling planet will be the strongest. Now a person in whom, say, the Mercury principle is predominant, will by acting upon the Mercury principle and another person born under a different planet be able to get him entirely under his control. For the stronger Mercury principle in him will overpower the weaker Mercurial element in the other. But he will have little power over persons born under the same planet as himself. This is the key to the occult sciences of magnetism and hypnotism. The student will understand that the orders and hierarchies are here named after their corresponding colors, so as to avoid using numerals, which would be confusing in connection with the human principles as the latter have no proper numbers of their own. The real occult names of these hierarchies cannot now be given. The student must, however, remember that the colors which we see with our physical eyes are not the true colors of occult nature, but are merely the effects produced on the mechanism of our physical organs by certain rates of vibration. For instance, Clerk Maxwell has demonstrated that the retinal effects of any color may be imitated by properly combining three other colors. It follows, therefore, that our retina has only three distinct color sensations, and we therefore do not perceive the seven colors which really exist, but only their imitations, so to speak, in our physical organism. Thus, for instance, the orange-red of the first triangle is not a combination of orange and red, but the true spiritual red, if the term may be allowed, while the red, blood-red, of the spectrum is the color of comma, animal desire, and is inseparable from the material plane. The unity of deity. Esotericism, pure and simple, speaks of no personal God. Therefore, are we considered as atheists? But in reality, occult philosophy as a whole is based absolutely on the ubiquitous presence of God, the absolute deity. And if it itself is not speculated upon, as being too sacred and yet incomprehensible as a unit to the finite intellect, Yet the entire philosophy is based upon its divine powers as being the source of all that breathes and lives and has existence. In every ancient religion, the one was demonstrated by the many. In Egypt and India, in Chaldea and Phoenicia, and finally in Greece, the ideas about deity were expressed by multiples of three, five, and seven, and also by eight, nine, and twelve great gods, which symbolize the powers and properties of the one and the only deity. This was related to that infinite subdivision by irregular and odd numbers, to which the metaphysics of these nations subjected their one divinity. Thus constituted, the cycle of the gods had all the qualities and attributes of the one supreme and unknowable. For in this collective of divine personalities, or rather of symbols personified, dwells the one God, the God One, that God which, in India, is said to have no second. O God Annie! spiritual son.
thou residest in the agglomeration of thy divine personages. These words show the belief of the ancients that all manifestation proceeds from one and the same source, all emanating from the one identical principle, which can never be completely developed except in and through the collective and entire aggregate of its emanations. The pleroma of Valentinus is absolutely the space of occult philosophy, for pleroma means the fullness, the superior regions. It is the sum total of all the divine manifestations and emanations expressing the plenum, or totality of the rays proceeding from the one, differentiating on all the planes, and transforming themselves into divine powers, called angels and planetary spirits in the philosophy of every nation. The Gnostic aeons and the powers of the Pleroma are made to speak as the devas and siddhas of the Puranas. The Epinoia, the first female manifestation of God, the principle of Simon Magus and Saturninus, holds the same language as the Logos of Basilides, and each of these is traced to the purely esoteric Aletheia, the truth of the mysteries. All of them, we are taught, repeat at different times and in different languages. The magnificent hymn of the Egyptian papyrus, thousands of years old. The gods adore thee, they greet thee, O oh, the one dark truth. And addressing Ra, they add, The gods bow before thy majesty, by exalting the souls of that which produces them, and say to thee, Peace to all emanations from the unconscious father of the conscious father of the gods. Thou producer of beings, we adore the souls which emanate from thee. Thou begettest us. O thou unknown, and we greet thee in worshipping each god's soul which descendeth from thee and liveth in us. This is the source of the assertion. Know ye not that ye are gods in the temple of God. This is shown in the roots of ritualism in church and masonry and Lucifer for March 1889. Truly then, as said 17 centuries ago, man cannot possess truth, Aletheia, except he participate in the Gnosis. So we may say now, no man can know the truth unless he studies the secrets of the pleroma, of the occultism. And these secrets are all in the theogony of the ancient wisdom religion, which is the aletheia of occult science. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.